Today, mate, 40 here. Going to cross to Tucker Carlson in a minute. Then I want to examine Tucker Carlson's claims about the WHO. Is uh, Joe Biden turning us over to WHO sovereignty, giving up our own sovereignty? Those are some of the things that I want to discuss. But first, let's go to Tucker Carlson. Welcome to Tucker Carlson's Unhappy Monday. Things are changing fast, as you know, and you can tell how fast they're changing by the way that people talk about politics. Language reflects feelings and thoughts. When your views change, so is the way you talk about them. And that's especially true of liberals who have very deep feelings. And their main feeling, this has always been true, is contempt for you. If you ever listen to NPR, you know exactly how much contempt liberals have for you, and you get to pay for it. NPR, NPR takes your tax dollars and then lectures you about how immoral you are. That is liberalism distilled. It's been going on a long time. NPR has been running its particular scam since 1971. But the sneering tone you hear on NPR has been the hallmark of liberals for nearly a century. Liberals have contempt for Dwight Eisenhower and for Barry Goldwater and for Richard Nixon. Boy, did they. And for Gerald Ford, even. If you're old enough to remember Ronald Reagan, you will recall vividly how liberals felt about him. Reagan was an idiot, they told you, a mouth breather, and so was anybody who would vote for him, very much including you. In the words of Al Gore, Republicans were the, quote, extra chromosome right wing. So they were literally genetically defective. That's how liberals actually talk. Wherever two or more liberals are gathered, you will find sanctimony. But there's a new inflection. You may have noticed it recently. The pivot, and it was a pivot, came six years ago. It was during the 2016 presidential campaign. Liberals seemed to lose any remaining sense of humor the moment Donald Trump arrived. Why? Well, because he called their bluff. Looking back, it's obvious what happened. By 2016, no one could argue that liberal programs, or many programs, the various fads and metaphorical wars we were waging on this or that bad thing, there was no evidence that any of it had done anything to improve American life. Liberals promised you they would make everything great, but they didn't. In fact, every single liberal enthusiasm failed, from radical feminism to urban renewal, from outsourcing to the so-called sharing economy. All of them, each and every one, turned out to be a complete disaster. The reason 2016 was significant is that's the year liberals could no longer deny this. They couldn't say, give us another 50 years and we'll turn Baltimore into Geneva. They couldn't say that because no one would believe it. Not even their own voters would believe that. So for liberals, 2016 was a profoundly humiliating moment. And those can be good. Well-adjusted adults learn from humiliating moments. But that's not what liberals did. They turned their rage outward. And they focused that rage on the people they had failed. You always hate the ones you betray. So liberals decided they hated the American middle class. In 2016, Democrats stopped making arguments in favor of their own policies, whatever those might be, and instead reoriented the entire party around attacking the very people that historically they had represented. Again, America's middle class. Now they hated them. At a fundraiser she thought was off the record, Hillary Clinton summed up the contempt all of them felt. Listen. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. A gaffe. Yeah, in the sense she was telling you exactly what she really thinks. She meant every word of that and the applause that she received was heartfelt too. They all felt that way. 
And that's why 2016 was the year that you and everybody else became a racist. It was the worst slur they could think of. They used it every day of the 2016 campaign. Racist, racist, racist. Well, in the end, and they hated this above all, Donald Trump won more non-white votes than any Republican presidential candidate ever, but they didn't stop. No, they just increased the volume. And by 2020, a lot of Americans were just exhausted. Fine, we'll vote for a mannequin, if only you will calm down. That was the unspoken yet very clear deal that liberals made with the country. If you ditch the orange man, we will stop screaming and burning your cities and we can be all Americans again. So people voted for Biden. Maybe not 81 million, but some people did. But Democrats didn't mean it. By January of last year, the Democratic Party had more power than at any time since FDR was president. But the telling point, the tip-off, was they didn't seem happy about it. If anything, they seemed angrier than ever. Why? Because they had lost faith in their own program. They controlled everything, but they had no interest in making things better. They were no longer interested at all in social improvement. Social Security, they bragged about that for almost 100 years. They stopped talking about it. Head Start, remember that? Improving public schools. These were all liberal enthusiasms. They tried them all and none of them worked. So they moved in the other direction. Instead of trying to fix the country, they decided to destroy the country and just start over. If you were watching from outside, it looked like they were having a fit. They erupted into uncontrollable nihilistic rage. They swept the plates off the table, punched a hole in the drywall, threw a vase on the TV, burn it down, let's start over. They called this the equity agenda. And you should have been nervous when you listened to them talk about it because every time they talked about the equity agenda, they scowled. Joe Biden looked angry at his own inauguration. He had promised hope, but in the end he delivered division and rage. This is Biden on the day he became president. And now, a rise of political extremism, white supremacy, domestic terrorism that we must confront and we will defeat. Our history has been a constant struggle between the American ideal that we're all are created equal and the harsh, ugly reality that racism, nativism, fear, demonization, have long torn us apart. The battle is perennial. Huh? What was that? That wasn't the deal. We got rid of the orange man and you're still calling me racist? Why are you doing that? Why aren't you trying to unite the country? Why don't you win over the people who didn't vote for you? They didn't spend one day doing that. Instead, they moved in the opposite direction at high speed. They all of a sudden declared that trespassing was a felony and threw Trump voters in prison. A lot of them are still there. They said about politicizing the most heavily armed federal agencies from the FBI to DHS to the Pentagon. That should make you nervous. And they did it for a reason, because they believed their political opponents were criminals. And you know that because they said so. They called them Nazis and white supremacists. You, you're not a Nazi or a white supremacist. Why are they calling you that? Why are they denouncing you as a seditionist, an enemy of the state? Why are they demanding that government censor and disarm you because they think you're a terrorist? They deployed thousands of National Guard troops to your capital and kept them there for months. What? Against Americans? We weren't being invaded. Those were Trump voters they claimed to be afraid of. They began using language that even the most radical Democrat in Congress just six years ago would have thought was way too extreme. 
And it wasn't just a few of them who did this. Virtually all of them did it. Certain dates echo throughout history. December 7th, 1941. September 11th, 2001. And January 6th, 2021. Similar to Pearl Harbor and 9-11. We can now add January 6th, 2021 to that very short list of dates in American history that will live forever in infamy. The worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. The worst attack on our democracy uh, since the Civil War. And this was the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. The worst single act of political violence since the Civil War. The worst attack on American democracy, arguably, probably, since the Civil War. The one six attacks are likely to kill a lot more Americans than were killed on the 9-11 attacks. January 6th was worse than 9-11. Why are they talking like that? It's so obviously untrue, and yet they're all reading from the same script. There has to be a purpose here. They're not doing this accidentally. People don't use identical chunks of language on the same day by accident. They thought this through. And then they began putting people on television whose only qualification was their willingness to say things that, again, three years ago would have been considered beyond the pale. And not just a few of them, a lot of them. Here's a former Trump administration lackey telling you with a straight face that the Republican Party is a bigger threat to this nation than Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Radicalized elements of the Republican Party now represent a bigger threat to our democracy than organizations like Al-Qaeda or ISIS ever did. Now, not necessarily to human lives, not necessarily, but a bigger threat to our democracy than those terrorist groups ever did. So why are they talking this way? Well, what else are they going to talk about? Their record in Detroit for the last 60 years? No. The Democratic Party decided the only way it could maintain power, win the next election, is to convince you, the voter, that the other side is dangerous, literally dangerous, not metaphorically dangerous, actually dangerous to your life. The problem is you have to up the ante in every election. If they're white supremacists this election, what are they next election? Nazis? And then what? John Brennan, the former CIA director, said he looked forward to an authoritarian crackdown. You'll notice he lumps in libertarians with fascist bigots and racists. Watch this. Looking forward that the members of the, the Biden team who have been nominated or have been appointed are now moving in laser-like fashion to try to uncover as much as they can about what looks very similar to insurgency movements that we've seen overseas, mm -hmm. where they germinate in different parts of the country and they gain strength and it brings together an unholy alliance frequently of religious, ex religious extremists, authoritarians, fascists, bigots, uh, racists, nativists, uh, even libertarians. That was the month that Joe Biden was inaugurated, the month you'd think liberals like John Brennan would be celebrating Trump's departure. But again, they were angrier than ever, and they've gotten angrier since that day. So where's this going? Well, it's going the only place it ever could go. Democrats have reached the logical end of name-calling. Why? Because they've run out of epithets. Once you've accused your political opponents of being Nazis, white supremacists, and then of treason, you have reached the limits of language. When you're dealing with someone who's committed treason, it is now a law enforcement matter. People are going to have to be physically punished. So not surprisingly, that is what they are now calling for. Arrest them! 
all of a sudden you're hearing a lot of liberals say that. Not just the crazies, but the mainstream people. Willard Mitt Romney, a man who's probably never used the F word in his entire life, is suddenly accusing Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii, one of the most reasonable people ever to serve in the body, of treason. Not accusing her of being mistaken or wrong, but accusing her of betraying her country even as she serves it in uniform. What's the penalty for that? Well, it's prison, at least. Watch. Tulsi Gabbard is being accused of spreading Russian false flag propaganda. And I think DOJ, in the same way that it is uh, setting up a task force to investigate oligarchs, should look into people who are Russian propagandists and shilling for Putin. They used to arrest people for doing stuff like this. If they thought you were uh, colluding with a Russian agent, if they thought you were putting out information or taking information and handing over to Russia, they used to actually investigate stuff like this and I guess now you know there seems to be no bars yeah it's the view they're harpies they're ridiculous they're stupid all true but what was so surprising is that that wasn't even considered much of a news story it's that common a liberal fundraising group called call to action is now demanding the arrest of Clarence Thomas's wife Ginny Thomas someone who as far as we know hasn't done anything wrong apart from marrying a man that liberals don't like. So even five years ago, if some liberal group was raising money on the idea that Ginny Thomas should be arrested because she's married to Clarence Thomas, that would have seemed demented. Now it's just another cable news segment. A lot of them are like that. Here's former Fox reporter Carl Cameron on CNN this weekend calling for us, this show, to be sent to prison because that's now the fair penalty for disagreeing with Joe Biden. Jail time. And the host of the show on CNN seems to think that sounds about right. In this particular case, Tucker has been screaming fire in a crowded movie house for years. And that cliche uh, really comes to the matter of what is free speech. And the fact of the matter is, if you disturb the peace by starting a riot in a movie theater, cops are going to arrest you and you might end up in jail or you might end up in something worse. Uh, And that kind of stuff absolutely has to stop, Uh, whether it's the antitrust bill to take down and deplatform people who lie and put out falsehoods that cause damage and violent, violent hate. Uh, there ought to be something done about it. And the, the administration is beginning to actually make a move on that. And it's been way overdue. The administration is beginning to make a move on that, says the journalist. Maybe wind up in jail or maybe something worse, quote. Well, what's something worse? We're not sure what something worse is, but it certainly feels like we're moving toward it at very high speed at this point. That's the end point to talk like that, something worse. Because rhetoric has its own internal logic. You've experienced it. You can talk yourself into things. We've all done that. Democrats are doing it right now. And what they're talking themselves into right now is, quote, something worse. It's scary. It is time to pull back. It is time to de-escalate. Otherwise, this is going to get really ugly really soon. Jason Whitlock is the host of Fearless. He joins us tonight. Jason, thanks so much for coming on. It's just funny how the hive feeds on itself and all of a sudden you're a white supremacist becomes you're a Nazi, you're Al-Qaeda becomes you're a felon, you're a non-person. You get pretty quickly from there into we need to kill you. 
Okay, let's have a look at the chat. Uh, Josh Randall says, I loathe living in CIA America. I have, to the best of my knowledge, not experienced any negative effects from living in CIA America. What do you mean about the dark side of living in CIA America? What is so, what is so awful here? Like, what is the hellscape that you are being forced to, to endure? What is so, because I, I don't see it. I mean, if this is a hellscape, then what's North Korea? What's life in Russia? What's life in, in Ukraine? Right? I think we have things pretty good here. Uh, America is a flawed country, but it's been the richest country in the world since about the 1880s. It's been the most powerful country in the world since about 1942. It uh, seems on track to dominate the world even more over the next few decades vis-a-vis its rivals. And uh, another comment in the chat, Tulsi Gabbard has such legit sex appeal, not physically as much as intellectually and perhaps spiritually, so few good people in Congress. Reasonable and responsible says, sex appeal, how relevant should that be in an elected official? Well, you know it when you feel it, and it feels good, right? <laughs> to, to feel some attraction to a politician is so rare, and if you're feeling it for, for Tulsi, it, it feels good. So... The main thing I want to focus on tonight is comparing Tucker Carlson's track record on COVID with the World Health Organization's track record on COVID. So Tucker was about a week ahead of Sean Hannity in in March and late February of 2020, telling people that they need to take COVID seriously. So his viewers, they'd listen to him. They were going to get a jump on the threat that COVID faced. And Tucker Carlson also took time out to speak to Donald Trump personally at Mar-a-Lago, saying that he, he really needed to take COVID seriously. On the downside, Tucker has had Alex Berenson on the show innumerable times. Alex Berenson, whom The Atlantic magazine called the epidemic's wrongest man. And Tucker has also shared a great deal of vaccine skepticism, which I don't believe is, is helpful or accurate and fair. So I got my fourth COVID shot, my fourth Pfizer COVID shot, my second booster shot yesterday. So I am a little under the weather, but I found a terrific Australian podcast from their national broadcaster, the ABC. It's called All in the Mind. And here's a show they did about six months ago on one of my favorite podcasts, Decoding the Gurus. So I want to play you just a few, few excerpts from... All in the mind. So it's it's a podcast about mental health issues. A lot of lot of good stuff there. This is an ABC podcast. Great. Good to know. Scientists across the globe are declaring a climate emergency. It's been labelled the worst fire season ever recorded, an apocalypse, a nightmare, and like looking into the gates of hell. For many of us, the past few years have been full of stress and uncertainty. If not in our personal lives, then certainly in the world around us. What is quickly turning out to be a crash for global share markets. With the nation struggling through its first recession in a generation. The World Health Organization declares the coronavirus a pandemic. It has many, understandably, searching for answers, explanations, and solutions. Enter the guru phenomenon, as psychology professor Matthew Brown and cognitive anthropologist Chris Cavanaugh describe it. With their podcast, Decoding the Gurus, they've been analyzing the characteristics shared among figures that act as modern-day secular gurus, people who espouse ideas on all kinds of topics, not necessarily related to their area of expertise, or sometimes any expertise at all. So what makes a guru, and how skeptical should we be? 
You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar, and today, the Guru Playbook and why we should get smart to their tactics. So I'm Professor Matthew Brown. I work at CQ University in the psychology department and uh, based in Queensland, Australia. CQ University, CQ University. Where is that? That's Central Queensland University. From from the chat, reasonable and responsible says, I just expressed in KMG's chat that I'd love to see him debate Luke Ford on COVID vaccines. KMG's response, Ford is too far gone, hysterical support for Australia's tyranny. Well, guess what? Australia had about 150th the per capita death rate of the United States. So if the 3.4 number is accurate, which many academics say that the actual COVID death toll uh, corresponds with the excess death toll, and that is about 3.4 times the official rate. That means that assuming, which is not a valid assumption, but let's just use it for discussion purposes. Let's just assume that the inherent conditions in Australia versus the United States are equal. And let's just assume that 100% of the difference in Australia's COVID death rate is based on their policies. And I don't believe that. But just for the sake of assumption, then for the sake of discussion, then we would have saved about 3 million lives in the United States if uh, we'd followed the uh, the Australian policy. So let's get Special a little bit here. only from... one facet of the company's campaign to push left-wing gender theory on children. As Breitbart reported, the multinational 2019 debate among gender-critical feminists about the desirability of this alliance was, to put it mildly, intense. This was, you know, metaphorical. But I suppose with Joe Biden, when Joe Biden seems to be looking forward to a, a war with China, that the, you know, the White House, the State Department can just, you know, contact the Chinese and say, look, don't listen to him. You know? Uh, I love Jack, but I have my doubts about it too, says Anne Run. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Jack Nicholson, that was a Napoleon. That was a little early in the day. It would have been a little early in the day for uh, Kubrick, I think. Honestly, I hope the real Napoleon acted like the uh, Bill and Ted one. What was it? Wiggy Piggy? Wiggy Piggy? Uh, it doesn't mean the books are banned. It's the entire problem with the GOP. Of course, it's not banned, even though it's been ruled as obscene, which is still the only material we can remove. That says respectable commenting name. Uh, my neighbor, Ron Rice, founder of Hawaiian Tropic, died a few day days ago, age 81. He was a good friend of Donald Trump. Billionaire Ron Rice has no wiki page. This is from God's Squad. Uh, another uh, another new name for me, Reasonable and Responsible, says, remember uh, David Dinkins characterizing New York City as a glorious mosaic. Joe Clark, who was remarkably enough, once prime minister of Canada, used to rabbit on about Canada's mosaic. And I just thought, look, mosaic refers to the Jewish religion and a style of art. Just stop using it for anything else. Just stop. Two meanings is enough. Uh, Susanna Berlinski says, what's the safest way to end a pregnancy? Birth. Well, um, I know the anti-abortionists will come running at you. Or sorry, the pro-abortionists uh, with uh, lots of statistics on this. And do we have anybody new here? Uh, I remember the KMG with the feminist sister with the gnome. She seemed like a nice young woman. Speaking of rad fans, will Kevin do this scum manifesto for the book, The Club? That was Valerie Salinas, who shot Andy Warhol almost to death. She was a lesbian prostitute and a bit of a hothead. Um, no, I, I'm not really interested in uh, reviewing books by, by lunatics. What the hell is a troon? Well, it's a variation on a word that you're not allowed to use uh, on YouTube and elsewhere. Uh, okay. Oh, hello, Quachalongo. That's Dr. Imani Woody to you. What is it? This this woman seems to be paid by, by government and various organizations to do to do what? She's been a three-term appointee to the DC Office of Alphabet People Affairs and was appointed by Mayor Bowser to serve on the Global Age Friendly Task Force. 
She was the first program officer for the 50 plus ministry of metropolitan community churches and is the president of the greater Brooklyn intergenerational village. She has a PhD in public service leadership. That's a bogus degree. That is not academic study, public service leadership. But they give away um, an awful lot of these phony PhDs now. Terrifying, says Vivian Shapiro, a veteran activist. It gives me despair, says Elizabeth Birch, who served as the executive director of the Human Rights Campaign from 1995 to 2004. Oh, uh, Basile, who grew up Catholic and spent 10 years married to a woman in the late 1970s, who was working at a federal agency then known as Action. It's funny uh, because uh, homosexual pressure groups and government agencies, government bodies are like this. Did you ever notice when you started seeing these oh-so-touching stories about the first uh, homosexual marriages in North America that almost without exception, one or both of the people being married was a, a civil servant of some sort. You ever notice that? Oh, so, uh, okay, here we go. And unity again. Soon there was more pressing priority, AIDS. One of Bazile's biggest professional victories came in 1986 after evidence emerged that the drug AZT was showing promise as an AIDS treatment. Despite that good news, there was no money to distribute the drug. No money. Girls Welcome was getting $8,000 per patient per year. And this was for a drug which had been developed, what, 15 years earlier? Oh, oh. So Basile Rosen and one other associate secured an 11th hour meeting with Lowell Weicker, a senator from Connecticut who was the chair of the subcommittee responsible for funding. I don't know what I can do, Basile remembers Weicker saying, but the next day the senator spoke of their meeting on the Senate floor and requested $47 million to be included in the budget to distribute AZD. The money was approved. This was still emotional for me, Basile says, choking back tears beneath his black frame glasses. It was the first big, big victory. Yes, well, I suppose if uh, genocide counts as a victory, yeah, it was a big victory. I suppose after all these years, uh, Basile and Hillary Rosen are not going to they're not going to admit what a disaster, an absolute disaster, uh, AZT uh, was. Of course, one of the other reasons that I, object, I feel so strongly about this is because let's take a, a scientific experiment that went disastrously wrong and then have all the scientists say, yay, we did such a good job. Oh, so you can just lie about anything and get away with it now. You can lie about killing hundreds of thousands of people. Golly, let's go back to the chat. Uh, okay. Okay, here we go. I like the theme of Mishima's about art meeting reality, says Oscar Toe. His final act is like Don Quixote in a way. Reasonable and responsible, a new name to me. Welcome aboard. Would love to hear a KMG debate. debate. Look forward on COVID vaccines, etc. I, I just look forward to panicked reaction to this. And his embrace of Australia's uh, tyranny. Someone like that, too far gone. Too far gone to debate. Uh, what exactly is my panicked reaction? I, I do think that uh, life is better than death. I do think that if you can save the lives of millions of people, that that's usually a pretty good thing to do. So I think there's something to be learned from Australia's reaction to COVID. I don't attribute the majority of the lower, lower death toll results with regard to COVID to Australian policy. I am open to policy being the primary reason for the majority of of lower death toll compared to the United States. But overall, Australia had 1 50th the per capita death rate of the United States with regard to COVID. Why would one not try to learn from that? Why would one be so oblivious to, to the deaths of about 20 million people around the world, about over 3 million, about 4 million of your fellow citizens, if the 3.4 multiplier is, is correct? Didn't really hear an argument there about oh, too far gone. And where was I panicked? I don't recall the feeling of panic. I mean, I've certainly experienced panic. I don't recall feeling panic with regard to COVID. It seemed like it was a serious 
health challenge. And I think that the elites and our ruling class and public health officials did uh, better than average in response to the COVID-19 threat. Now, I think Tucker Carlson makes some good points. I think sometimes Tucker Carlson was right and the WHO, the World Health Organization, was wrong. I think sometimes the populists are right. But with regard to COVID, I think the elites were more right than the populace. I'm Christopher Kavner. I'm a cognitive anthropologist slash social psychologist, and I do research at Oxford University. Professor Brown and Dr. Kavanaugh started looking into gurus last year, but they've been noticing these types of characters popping up more frequently for years, especially following the 2016 U.S. presidential election. We think of these gurus as this new breed of figures who promote... Okay, and the chat says, what, 3 million lives saved in the U.S.? Did that many die? I, I keep saying that the dominant academic interpretation of the true death toll from COVID is 3.4 times the stated death toll because that approximately equates with the excess death numbers. So to me, that 3.4 number seems reasonable and responsible. It may turn out to be bogus. There are arguments for COVID deaths being overstated. I don't find those arguments nearly as compelling as the arguments for there being far more COVID deaths than have been officially reported. But I should shared with you the proviso. This is an academic interpretation of the excess death number and that real COVID death rates are about 3.4 times the official death rate. So the official death rate is that over a million Americans have died from COVID. If the 3.4 number is reasonably accurate, then we're talking over three and a half million dead from COVID. Close to four million. Themselves as being uniquely qualified to provide uh, like a special source of knowledge. So they're not traditional spiritual gurus. Um, in fact, they're generally very much secular types, but they do certainly provide or purport to provide knowledge that could help people to live a good life or a bespoke political worldview and increasingly uh, anti-establishment or anti-institutional views. They're also quite different from what people might think of as the stereotypical conspiracy theorists, people like Alex Jones, who shout a lot. If you try to take our firearms, we will not relinquish them. Do you understand? They often have an academic background and they often evoke the calm and reasoned language of science and skepticism. The problem I have with identity politics as a mode of philosophical apprehension is that it's predicated on the idea that the appropriate way to classify people is by their group identity in whatever fragmentary formulation that might take. And I, I think we view it that there's a lot of continuity with the old style health and wellness or spiritual gurus, the kind of Deepak Chopra's. Have what is called soft eyes, which means become aware of the space we're in. But it may be with the advent of social media and online platforms that they provided a new avenue for a kind of golden age of gurus of all different stripes, and particularly in the kind of political and culture war arena to flourish. So if it's not the Alex Jones types and it's not the Deepak Chopra types, who are we talking about? Who are this new breed of gurus that you guys are looking at? Some prototypical gurus would include people like Jordan Peterson, who published uh, 12 Rules for Life and achieved some notoriety as an actor on culture war topics. But even figures like Russell Brand, for instance, who many people would be familiar with, has with, with his own personal podcast, um, is increasingly going down the route of, I guess, cultivating a following and promoting his own quite unique worldview. As well as that, we have people like Sam Harris, for instance, who was uh, relatively famous in atheist circles and, I guess, science and rationality uh, circles. I, I might say, in addition to that, the figures that we look at tend to be people who are seen as public intellectuals. You know, it could be mainstream figures like Noam Chomsky, to an extent, or Nicholas Taleb, around whom. It's not to denigrate that they have legitimate work or research, but rather that there's an element of a personality cult and the. That hey, so I thought we should just pause and take a moment to meditate on these luminous portraits of queerness, or also about life's universality. I mean, pretty, pretty moving stuff.
Thank you. Thank you, Washington Post. I mean, you don't you don't get this kind of perspective on Fox News or on uh, Steve Saylor's blog or on Tacky Mag. These luminous portraits of queerness are also about life's universality. Could not have said that better than myself. Now, on the other hand, if you're struggling to give up man-man sex, probably this would be a really good time to just close the door on that that section of your life with the, with the monkeypox coming around and seeing seeming to disproportionately affect uh, homosexuals and people of color. But the most important thing is that uh, we need to denounce homophobic and racist stereotypes in monkeypox reporting, right? So thank God we've got UNAIDS to release a statement on Sunday condemning reporting on monkeypox that includes portrayals of LGBTI. What's I? And African people portrayals that reinforce homophobic and racist stereotypes and exacerbate stigma, right? What you need are portrayals like this, right? These luminous portraits of queerness are also about life's universality. Come on, guys. We don't need homophobic and racist stereotypes in, in our monkey box reporting. Now, HIV is spread largely by blood, blood transfusions with infected blood, heroin junkies sharing needles without cleaning them, and gay men sodomizing each other on a mass scale. Monkey pox appears to be spread mostly by socializing. So... I don't know, were you at Bear Week in Provincetown? The, the big super spreader event of last summer's COVID Delta wave was Bear Week in Provincetown. Now, Steve Saylor says, shutting down schools for semesters and forcing children to wear masks is following the science, but asking gays to turn it down a notch until we figure out why they are spreading monkeypox would be the worst thing ever. Some people's fun, such as children's, is just less important than other people's fun, such as gays. Gosh, I, I think I think I have to disavow that. Okay, Washington Post. Global health talks clouded by conspiracy theories about pandemic treaty. So global health leaders gathered in Geneva Sunday to discuss the pandemic and they're facing another viral problem, a visceral, passionate online backlash that falsely accuses the World Health Organization of conspiring to take power from national governments. So the World Health Assembly, the decision-making body, the WHO's 194-member states, is holding its first fully in-person event in two years as many coronavirus restrictions are lifted. So this year, this gathering is being framed by conspiracy theorists as a key moment in the battle between democracy and tyranny. So I think Tucker Carlson did not do a reasonable and responsible and fair and accurate job on the WHO and discussion of a pandemic treaty on May May the 19th, so that's four days ago. So it's a potential agreement that could one day regulate how countries prepare for and respond to future pandemics. Though the treaty will not be agreed at at the assembly, the backlash has spread fast and far. So Twitter account for the 1990s English pop group Right Said Fred posted, this so-called pandemic treaty is the single greatest global power grab that any of us have seen in our lifetime. So... His, uh, come on, come on, Tucker. And tonight, happy Thursday. We want to open this evening with a story you may not have heard, but that you should definitely know about. It begins early last year when Joe Biden, as one of his very first acts as president, brought the United States back into the World Health Organization. We saw this, we thought, why would Biden be so anxious to do something like that? At the time, we assumed it was just part of his larger de-orangification effort. Trump had pulled the U.S. out of the World Health Organization, so Biden had to do the opposite. Childish, but that seemed like a fair explanation. 
Still, it did seem a little weird because there aren't many international bodies that are more thoroughly discredited than the World Health Organization, particularly after COVID. It's a laugh. Really? Really? Uh, on what basis? I, I went looking for analyses of the World Health Organization's response to, to COVID, and they certainly made many mistakes. I mean, who didn't? They're, they're a human organization. Of course, they're going to make mistakes. Stock. There's one thing it's not good at. It's public health. Okay, so Tucker says they're a laughing stock, but he doesn't say laughing stock to whom. Like, who are the major figures who are denouncing the WHO as a laughing stock? Now, I, I got a friend who works with. Oh, bloody hell! I got a friend who works with WHO, and and he was, you know, he's he's embarrassed by by its uh, performance. Come on, man! Trying to we're trying to a give different people, kind of dentistry. Trying to give people a little uncensored Tucker Carlson here. And uh, bloody Fox News is just just popping, just popping ads on me. Come on, man. Come on, man. Here, I'll and happy Thursday. We want to open this evening with a story this way. First, WHO claimed there was no evidence of human to human transmission of the virus. Yeah, they got it wrong. OK, as Tucker Carlson ever made, made a mistake. All right. The WHO made a lot of significant mistakes. And they commissioned an independent report critiquing what they had done. As Tucker Carlson commissioned independent investigations of what he's said regard to COVID, I don't think so. Remember this? They cited Chinese officials who were obviously lying, and we now know they were lying. Then, when it became clear the virus probably came out of a Chinese government lab, WHO sabotaged the investigation into the origin of the virus by appointing a gain-of-function researcher to lead the investigative team. Pretty shocking if you think about it. And to this day, the WHO still has not acknowledged it did any of that, though it definitely did. Instead, they've continued to praise China's response to COVID as, quote, transparent, which is the one thing it's not. It's almost amusing. But again... Okay, that's, that's a really good criticism. That's... An important group. That's weird if you think about it. Why would Joe Biden want to join a group that every informed person laughs at? Well, more than a year later, we think we know the answer. The Biden administration is very close to handing the World Health Organization power over every aspect, the intimate aspects of your life. So imagine the civil liberties. That's absolutely nonsense. There's no evidence for this. This is just hysteria. These abuses that you lived through during the COVID lockdowns, but permanent and administered from a foreign country. Here's what we're looking at tonight. This January, the Biden administration submitted a series of proposed amendments to something called the International Health Regulations, the IHR. Now, the Biden administration's amendments along. Okay, a good article in, in Fortune was debunking this. Why Tucker Carlson is wrong about the World Health Organization and his pandemic treaty. This is David Meyer writing. The WHO, if you believe Tucker Carlson, is about to seize total authority over emergency operations in the United States if there's ever a public health emergency. That's just bogus, right? Just absolutely, absolutely false. And man, oh man... You try you try to share an article on here and they just start popping. Why haven't you registered? Okay. So the White House is going to be the muscle for the director of the World Health Organization, exclaims Tucker Carlson. Scary stuff, but is it true? News to me, deadpan WHO communications director Gabby Stern on Twitter. So there's a recklessness with Tucker Carlson, which is disturbing.
just absolute recklessness, absolute disregard for facts, for fairness, for being reasonable and responsible. So the right-wing Fox Pundit's Thursday Night Diatribe was in fact just the latest articulation of a conspiracy theory that's been doing the rounds in recent weeks, particularly among those who are already opposed to COVID lockdown measures. So comic Russell Brand is another high-profile proponent. The small United Australia Party has been hawking the theory ahead of elections down under. So this conspiracy theory focuses on a pandemic treaty that's being thrashed out under the auspices of the WHO. So per Tucker Carlson, the Biden administration has eliminated provisions in the draft text so as to give the United Nations Public Health Agency unlimited power. So Tucker said, as originally written, they couldn't do anything without the permission of their member countries' governments. But thanks to the change that the Biden administration pushed effectively, there is no limit at all on WHO's power. Then it gets worse from there. That is bogus. That is just nonsense. Yeah, there's a pandemic treaty that is being drawn up. So the White House can't possibly be eliminating provisions. Right? At no point have governments agreed on what's going to be included or not included in the treaty. So no one has gotten a text of this treaty yet. The text hasn't even been drafted yet. So what did happen a few weeks ago is the WHO asked governments to send in their wish list for the treaty, which will then inform the contents of that first draft. So Tucker Carlson confused the pandemic treaty process with changes being made to the International Health Regulations, IHR, which is a legally binding global agreement that's been around since 1969. So the U.S. government did indeed earlier this year submit amendments to the IHR, which will be voted on in the World Health Assembly next week. But these are completely separate processes. So the IHR is about technical public health guidance for how governments should and shouldn't respond to public health emergencies. And given how governments widely ignored the rules when COVID-19 struck, it also demonstrates the fundamental limitation of international law. Everyone may agree to it, but good luck enforcing it. So China flouted the IHR by suppressing news of the virus's emergence and drawing a curtain over the disease's origins. So the pronouncements of the head of the WHO are being banned in China currently because he said that China's zero-tolerance total lockdown response to latest editions of COVID is not going to work out very well. So many countries broke the rules by instituting strict travel bans. Now, that is something where the WHO was clearly wrong. If more countries had instituted strict travel bans earlier, we would have had fewer deaths. All right, so the WHO messed up, failing to declare an emergency when cases were spreading. All right, so... The pandemic treaty is supposed to demonstrate the political commitment alongside public health law. So the stated aim of the treaty is we must be better prepared to predict, prevent, detect, assess, and effectively respond to pandemics in a highly coordinated fashion. I don't see that as sinister. Of course, that can be sinister, but on its face, I don't see it as sinister. So this means more data sharing, better research, improved regional and global production distribution of medical countermeasures such as vaccines, medicines, diagnostics, and personal protective equipment. What is so sinister about this? So Tucker Carlson says, so you're going to find out exactly when you're allowed to get on a bus or train or airplane, or how about your bicycle? Will they regulate that too? Maybe. The WHO has sought this authority for years. Of course, who doesn't want more power? Now, nowhere has the WHO suggested that they need more power to enforce lockdowns or supersede sovereign interests. So the WHO is not going to suggest lockdowns. And even if they did, governments don't have to follow. So the whole goal of this discussion is to promote global collaboration to prepare for future pandemics. What's so sinister about that? Now, 
As with all international instruments, if any accord is reached, it will be determined by governments themselves who will take action considering their own national laws and regulations. So I think uh, Tucker Carlson vastly overstating the threat here. Along with those from several other countries will be combined to create a new global pandemic treaty. We need a pandemic treaty. That treaty is set to be adopted starting this weekend in Geneva at the World Health Assembly. Now, the full text of the treaty is not yet finished, but a WHO working group has summarized what it's going to look like. The document begins by... Okay, so people in the chat say Fauci, Anthony Fauci did a great job with COVID. So what type of person do you think can get to the position where Anthony Fauci is at? Do you think it would just be a fearless truth teller? If someone was a fearless truth teller, they wouldn't be in that bureaucratic position. You really think that alternatives to Anthony Fauci would just be better? There's, there's no evidence for that. Now, Fauci did an okay job. He, he basically stuck to the consensus, and as the consensus changed, he, he changed with it. By promising to restrict the WHO's authority just to pandemics. Calm down, it's just pandemics. Quote, WHO secretariat to play the leading, convening, and coordinating role in operational aspects of emergency response to a pandemic. End quote. So don't get paranoid. Someone needs to coordinate the pandemic response globally because it's a global problem. Got it? Settle down, conspiracy nut. But here's the catch. The World Health Organization gets to define what a pandemic is, when a pandemic is in progress, and how long a pandemic lasts. Then you read the fine print and you realize the WHO will have total authority over emergency operations in the United States if there is ever a, quote, public health emergency. Huh? What qualifies exactly as a public health emergency? Well, they don't define that, but they get to. They get to decide what a public health emergency is, and then they have total authority. You can see where this is going. Now, the Biden administration has made certain that unelected bureaucrats at the WHO have total authority to declare and define public health emergencies. They did it explicitly. The White House eliminated a provision that would have required the World Health Organization to, quote, consult with an attempt to obtain verification from the state party in whose territory the event is allegedly occurring in. So as originally written, they couldn't do anything without the permission of their member countries' governments. But thanks to the change that the Biden administration pattern of the guide is going off, there is no limit at all on WHO's power. And then it gets worse from there. The treaty... Okay, let's get a little more here from Tucker tonight. It's the third time, at least, that Biden has threatened to wage war against China. He's also constantly threatening to wage war against Russia, which we're now doing. So Elbridge Colby is a former Trump administration DOD official. He's also a defense and foreign policy expert who's been very tough on China in his writings over the years. So we thought it'd be worth asking what he thinks of this. Bridge Colby, thanks so much for coming on. So, with, with I mean, we have this longstanding policy of not saying certain things out loud, strategic ambiguity. Um, what do you make of the president violating that today? Well, I think it's a mistake, Tucker. I mean, I, look, I think we should defend Taiwan, but there's a reason that we speak quietly about this. I mean, the old policy is you know, uh, speak softly, but carry a big stick. And as you suggest, we kind of lack the big stick and the president was sort of blithely bringing it up. And, you know, you don't poke the dragon, if you will, when you're not quite ready. And that's unfortunately the situation we're in right now. I mean, well, it does seem considering that, you know, all network servers are all made in China, right, by a Chinese government controlled company. Like, to what extent could China just like shut the United States down? I mean, we're dependent on them for virtually everything. We don't even have vitamin C. 
made domestically? Like, why would you talk like this right now? Well, exactly. I mean, we should be focusing on getting ready. I mean, I think st stepping back a bit, Tucker, I mean, if we're serious about this and we should be, the president himself said that Asia is going to be the most important theater of the world, the most economy of the world. Are we acting like a nation that's getting ready that could possibly have a war with China right. in a right. few years? Exactly. I mean, that's a real exactly. thing. And tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans, both combat forces and civilians could die. And my question is, why isn't everybody, Democrats and Republicans, acting like that's a real possibility instead of, say, high-fiving over sending $40 billion to Ukraine? As you know, I'm in favor of supporting the Ukrainians, but we are on the verge of a superpower war. Are we acting like it? I don't think so. I just talked to someone who's active duty yesterday who said, you know, every meeting he has with, with the, the commanding officer is about politics and DEI and, you know, it's wildly politicized. Is anybody who's in favor of prosecuting these brand new wars, like thinking about the readiness of the United States military? Look, there are a lot of great people in the military. I'm as concerned yes, as course. you are about this, the, the politicization and the faddishness. And that does have a very real impact on our military readiness. No question. But look, I mean, the Chinese on their end, I mean, the recent news reporting is that they're banning uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party members, basically the elites of China, from having assets abroad. Apparently, they're cutting up people's passports uh, who are trying to leave China, even on just visits. What does that suggest? That suggests yeah. to me a country that's getting ready. We should be getting ready and nothing else should be going on in our military. Basi I mean, basically, if you're not working on this problem with all of your heart and might, and that's military officers, but it's also the civilians and the political leaders who are responsible for them. And that's, that's the real question I have is instead of blithely mouthing off about, oh yeah, we made that commitment, let's get real and do it. That's, I, I think you're To exactly deter it, right. Tucker, sorry, to deter it, to avoid the war. That's the of point. Of course, and if yeah. your military is not a pure meritocracy, you are not ready, period, Right. I, I would argue. Elbridge Colby, great to see you. Okay, so the more that Joe Biden speaks off the cuff, uh, the more people dislike him. All right. I mean, this guy is unhinged. Handbasket. We are desperately concerned about the circumstance relating to uh, avian flu. We don't have enough vaccines. We don't have enough police officers. And we're going to debate the next three weeks, I'm told, gay marriage, a flag amendment, and God only knows what else. I can't believe the American people can't see through this. We already have a law. The Defense of Marriage Act, where we've all voted, not where I voted and others said, look, marriage is between a man and a woman, and states must respect that. Nobody's violated that law. There's been no challenge to that law. Why do we need a constitutional amendment? Marriage is between a man and a woman. What's the game going on here? And hand basket. And his, uh, Joe Biden in 1988. I went to law school on a full academic scholarship, the only one in my in my class uh, to have a full academic scholarship. Went back to law school and in fact ended up in the top half of my class. I was the outstanding student in the political science department at the end of my year. I graduated with three degrees from undergraduate school and 165 credits, only 123 credits. Biden now concedes he did not graduate in the top half of his law school class, that he does not have three degrees from college, and that he was not named outstanding political science student in college. Newsweek says Biden actually went to school on a half scholarship ended up near the bottom of his class and won only one degree, not three. Joe Biden ranked 76th in a class of 85 at the University of Syracuse Law School. 
I mean, this guy comes off this whole thing as a flyweight. Now Biden says Newsweek is right. His memory had failed him. And I'd be delighted to sit down and compare my IQ to yours if you'd like, Frank. Joe Biden was victimized by the truth. Bye-bye, Biden. He may not know it yet, but I think this is very going to be very difficult for him to recover. Is Joe Biden dead meat, yes or no? I think so. Bob? It's in terminal condition. Terminal? Eleanor? Yes, unless he comes in third in Iowa. Morton? <laughs> Dying. I say dead. Okay, I remember the fall of 1985. I was reading the New Republic, and there's a terrific article by Britt Hume titled, Shut Up, Senator Biden. I mean, the more this guy gets to speak off the cuff in public, the bigger the idiot he looks like. And these incredibly reckless comments on foreign policy say, yes, the United States will go to war to defend Taiwan against China, that we want regime change in Russia that uh, we just want to bleed Russia. Uh, I mean, this guy is just reckless, reckless, reckless. And this is a lifelong habit of his, uh, just uh, spinning things off off the top of his head. Doesn't doesn't really stand up to examination in a, in a positive way. All right. So... The Washington Post talks about the so-called pandemic treaty is the single greatest global power grab that any of us have seen in our lifetime. That's a Twitter account for the 1990s English pop group, Wright said Fred. But a pandemic treaty is not imminent. The member states agreed in December that a new agreement is needed. It will take years of negotiations to reach a final draft. 2024 is the target. Nor will it grant WHO sweeping new powers. The organization has no army. No power of sanction will still need to rely on member states to comply and enforce its rules. Right? Many experts think it's unlikely to ever happen given the huge geopolitical divisions between key countries such as the United States and China. So when people get all into conspiracy theories about how evil these international institutions are like the, the UN, it's just bogus. They don't have any power. The WHO doesn't, doesn't have any power. Now, WHO has made many mistakes. And let's credit them. They commissioned an independent report and here's an article from the BBC, May 12, 2021. So the COVID-19 pandemic was preventable, an independent review panelist said. Right, the pandemic was set up by the WHO, said the combined response of the WHO and global governments were a toxic cocktail, that the WHO should have declared a global emergency earlier than it did. Without urgent change, the world was vulnerable to another major disease outbreak. And the report was compiled by the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response. Situation we find ourselves in today could have been prevented. It's due to a myriad of failures, gaps, and delays in preparedness. The panel argues WHO should have declared the outbreak in China an international emergency a week earlier than it did. And it said the WHO's declaration was lost as countries failed to take appropriate measures to halt the spread of the virus. And then the WHO was hindered by its own regulations that travel restrictions should be a last resort. So Europe and the United States and other countries wasted the entire month of February and only acted to restrict international travel when the hospitals began to fill up. So then much of the world descended into a winner-takes-all scramble for protective equipment and medicines. And so, yeah, many powerful criticisms to make of the WHO, but WHO has not been a joke. They did some good things. They did some bad things. Now, let's have a look at the chart. If the 
if the flu vaccine is so great, why do they need to change it? Because viruses change. They, they mutate. They evolve. Right? You ate yesterday. Why are you eating today? Take a booster for a virus that is mutated at least 10 times. Makes sense, says the chat. Well, it, it does make sense because even though COVID vaccines don't provide perfect protection, right? You don't get to enter into a fantasy world where everything is freely and sweet and taken care of once you get a COVID vaccine. It simply reduces your odds of dying. It reduces your odds of serious illness. Uh, Josh Randall said, I, I had COVID and it was nothing. Okay, for you, it was nothing. For 20 million other people, it was deadly. What, what is the greater significance that for you, it was nothing? Right? I'm glad that for you, it was nothing. To me, it's more significant that 20 million other people are dead from it. Right? I, I just don't see the great ontological significance that for you, it was nothing. Right? For most people under 60, COVID is not a, a big threat. But according to the most comprehensive academic research we have so far, the average COVID death robbed people of about 15 years of life. So we've got about 20 million people approximately dead from COVID if the 3.4 multiplier is accurate, with an average loss of life of about 15 years per death. I'd say that's fairly significant. Right, back to this terrific Australian podcast on the ABC called All in the Mind. This profiles Another favorite podcast of mine, Decoding the Gurus. Forms around them. Yeah, I was going to ask what makes them gurus and, and what makes that problematic? Yeah, as Chris said, uh, often these figures do have legitimate specialities and have a, a body of, of output that is perfectly unguru-like. But when we see them moving into guru territory is when they tend to promote themselves as being qualified to provide a better perspective on pretty much anything, whether it's uh, something to do with science, something to do with health, um, politics. It's essentially, they sell themselves as providing a worldview, an accurate view of the world that their followers cannot get from traditional media or from institutions. And Elliot Blatt says... Eat properly and your immunity will fight anything. Guess what? Eat properly and for some people, your immunity will fight a lot of things. But uh, you don't have any vaccines? Bro, I am sure you've been vaccinated many, many times. Right? Eat properly and then life will be solved. People love the magic key. Right? Oh, eat properly, magic key to, to the health. Right? All you have to do is eat properly and uh, then all your health problems are solved doesn't work that way. You can get vaccinated and you can still die. Right? You can get vaccinated and you can still get sick. There's no one key that will take care of all your health problems. Look, you changed my comment, bro. What the? I'm trying to do the best I can. There's a river of commentary. I'm lining up different articles and excerpts from videos and podcasts. All right. I can't have perfect recall of the exact thing that... That I'm commenting on. Lucas caused me to want to get sodomized while listening to Depeche Mode. No condom. Shake the disease. You made me do this, Luke, unless you read about Samuel Weiss right now on air. Please, God. What is wrong with you? Is Luke just going to ignore the history of medicine? Look up Samuel Weiss. I know who Samuel Weiss is. If people want to look up Samuel Weiss, look up Samuel Weiss. Like, why does it matter whether or not I read a Wikipedia entry on uh, Samuel Weiss right now? It's a fairly familiar story. Uh, Josh Randall says, I never said no one should take the vax, said I see no reason why I should take it. Okay, yes, good, good point. So people 
and under 60 are not as vulnerable to the deadly effects of COVID as people over 60. Right? I'm 55 years of age. I am more vulnerable than a person of normal health who's 25 or 35 or 45 years of age. I'm glad to hear that Ford was simply overwhelmed and not dishonest. like universities or expert disciplines such as virologists. So when they start to do that, then we would say they're moving into guru territory. This tendency to weigh in on any number of topics, regardless of expertise, is something Professor Brown and Dr. Kavanaugh have dubbed galaxy brainness. It's one of several traits they think gurus commonly share. In the way that we formulated it, it's a tendency to have hot takes about a constellation of topics, you know, the political sphere, the cultural sphere, the scientific sphere. So it's the willingness to venture opinions across a, a galaxy of topics with, with little okay. restraint. Another quality that I think is, is really important. Okay, obviously, I'm not an expert with regard to health or, or anything. All right, I'm just giving you the best, giving you the best years of my life, bro. I'm giving you the best of my analysis in my fevered post fourth Pfizer COVID shot, you know, state. I'm not exactly at my best today, but I'm here for you. I'm here to increase radical love and inclusion. I want to create a show that has all the positive aspects of a gay bathhouse without the negative aspects. So. If you're feeling tempted this evening, oh, you're just jonesing to go to a gay bathhouse, I want to recreate for you in this virtual space the positive aspects of the gay bathhouse, but without the sodomy and, and disease transmission, right? This is a place of radical love and inclusion, but without the disease transmission. The vast majority of our gurus seem to have a strong element of narcissism. And when you think about what's required to present yourself as such a central source of, of better knowledge on so many different topics, th there's a real power in that, I guess, that kind of confidence. But even when they're concentrating on a single issue, there's an element of bravado at play, says Professor Brown. Let's just take COVID as an example. A couple of our gurus, uh, Brett Weinstein and his wife, Heather Haying, both PhDs in evolutionary biology, they believe that the medical and scientific community are wrong, that there are dangerous long-term effects of vaccines, and they promote unproven treatments such as ivermectin uh, as prophylaxis and treatment for COVID. Something ungodly is going on, right? What is going on? This is insane. What, what indeed? The problem here isn't necessarily that they have an opinion. It's that they're making such strong claims on something so outside their area of expertise. In this case, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hang are evolutionary biologists, not virologists or immunologists. And their claims are totally at odds with the medical consensus. So as you can imagine, it takes a real confidence to, I guess, make such strong statements. Another trait common to... Okay, so I was listening to Decoding the Gurus and there's some gold in the latest episode. They interview someone from the University of Toronto Psychology Department who... Uh, worked for years, even published papers with Jordan Peterson. So here we go. Come on, mate. Come on, mate. Jordan complaining about the Ethics Review Board. I was witness to this because he had cc'd a letter to the IRB and he cc'd the entire well before he rose to prominence and fame. So that article you're describing where Bernard Schiff was talking about Jordan complaining about the Ethics Review Board, I was witness to this because he had cc'd a letter to the IRB and he cc'd the entire department to complaining about what he thought was a heavy-handed oversight. And I agree with both you and Matt in the sense that, yes, IRBs sometimes are bureaucratic and sometimes they're petty, but they're clearly required. And some of the critiques of the IRB that he levied were so facile. They were like, so how can someone IRB... who's got a master's degree criticize me? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the IRB is a bureaucratic institution. Like all human institutions, an ethics review board is not like inherently evil. But uh, Jordan Peterson was appalled that someone with a master's degree 
get to challenge his ethics. The degree you have, have anything to do with whether something is seen as potentially harmful to a participant. Um, so just like he was in a position of authority and only people who were, had his level of education or his level of status could opine on his work. And that was just a silly nonsense. But it went both ways. He was a much loved professor. I would say in modestly positive reviews in my teaching evaluations, but I don't think ever, maybe, maybe one time, I've had one student say that my class changed their life. Um, but these were regular comments that he would get every single semester. Like a third of his students would be spellbound by him and say, this class changed my life. And it was a regular occurrence. It was bizarre. Until you actually spend some time in a room with a man. And I okay, it's interesting. I was absolutely spellbound by Dennis Prager. So probably no one else uh, watching has, has ever experienced that. But I think many of us have vulnerabilities, particularly me. I didn't really have a good relationship with my father. So I was always looking for substitute father figures. And then, you know, Dennis Prager came along and I was absolutely spellbound. And I think for thousands of young men who don't have good relations with their fathers, uh, Jordan Peterson comes along and holds them spellbound. You know, you guys talk about what it's like to be a guru, you about your barometer. I mean, that man just has charisma. And by that, I mean, there's something magnetic about him. I remember very clearly, I was maybe my second or third year professor and, and we had a little party. He, he came with his wife and he was just in the back, not really holding court, but whoever was around him could not look away. There's, there's something about the way he speaks. The, you, you guys mentioned confidence. Um, I think it's also the musicality of the way he speaks. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's just something captivating about it. And I know one other person in my life who also has got this special power, this special uh, Like uh, Richard Spencer, there's a musicality to the way he speaks. Richard Spencer speaks in a very pleasant manner. It's fun to listen to people like uh, Jordan Peterson or Richard Spencer. Some people simply have the charisma. Some people are simply good talkers. And they can absolutely hold you spellbound. Power of charisma. And no matter what he does, it doesn't matter what he does. He will have followers. He'll have people who agree with him and go to the end of the earth with him. Yeah. No, no. Full points for style. I mean, Robert Wright also mentioned that. He said just one thing that all of the gurus we look at have in common is that they're just good talkers. Unlike Chris, for instance. They don't <laughs> say I'm an R a lot. And yeah, they're just very eloquent. So that's part of it. The other part. So my father was just a good talker. He could absolutely mesmerize you as he mesmerized thousands of people. Uh, Star Lion says, Luke, you're the... You look like the only person I know who took the vaccine, seems to be well and even healthier. I'm rooting for you. I'm just worried because of what happened to my dad and others I've seen. Well, guess what? I think generally speaking, wearing a seatbelt is a healthy choice. But for some people, wearing a seatbelt takes their life, right? It's the choice that ends their life. So generally speaking, wearing a seatbelt, good idea for your safety. Some occasions, wearing a seatbelt is a death sentence. But it is the charisma. And some level... Yeah, they have to have it. And I've watched a few of his videos and even the ones which are the attack videos. Have you guys seen the one where they've spliced it where he's talking about rats? You're the rat and the rat goes, <laughs> it's cringe really. But even with that extremely unsympathetic edit and talking about something that's probably nonsense, like his delivery is clearly compelling. Far better than mine. Yeah. I'm tempted to adopt his time traveler fashion style for... And Sarline says, Luke, how do you interpret Semmelweis? So the Semmelweis story was that he recognized that all sorts of expectant mothers were dying because physicians would not wash their hands. And so Semmelweis had a very unpleasant personality and other medical professionals scorned him and they denied these elementary truths that he was saying that it's really important that uh, doctors you know, wash their hands, use soap antiseptic on their hands before they, they deliver babies. And Semmelweis was right, but he was so unpleasant that it took many, many years for his his truth to be spread widely. So Having the truth is important, but you also need to be able to say things or you need to be a vehicle for truth so that other people can hear what you're saying. If everybody hates you, you're not going to have much success. Now, from what I've read by Greg Cochran and some other people, until about the 1930s, uh, medicine didn't save more lives than it took. So if Greg Cochran is right, and I think it's, it's possible, 
until the 1930s, medicine was killing as many people as it was saving. Just like the FBI. The FBI has done some good things. They've also been a major force for criminal activity in this country. And sometimes the evil that the FBI has done has outweighed the good. Same with the CIA. CIA has made a ton of mistakes. Sometimes they've done good things. But every major crisis that's come up since World War II, they've been com- caught completely unawares. So on, on balance, I suspect that the CIA has probably done more good than harm. But you can make a pretty good argument that the CIA has frequently done far more harm than good. The FBI has frequently done more harm than good. Sometimes police do more harm than good. Sometimes doctors do more harm than good. Overall, I am pro-law enforcement. Like, I love our cops and our law enforcement. I love our military too because they're important. But I recognize all institutions are human. And in certain situations, what they're doing becomes a net negative. My lectures next year, like just to give me a bit, you know, I'm not going to go. I see where that leads, like showing up a Joe Rogan in a tuxedo, like he was just missing a rose. So I'm not going to go that far. But I'm going to give you a pocket watch. I just, no. I think you should do it. Yeah, you should do it. You got to go full steampunk. You got to look like you're in a Jules Verne. Top, yeah, top hat with a little clockwork talk and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so this is why we won't be as successful. Um, but Mickey, we didn't just bring you here to talk about. Okay, so much good stuff there. Let's get a little bit more from Tucker Carlson's uh, irresponsible rant last week. He also mandates a quote whole of government and whole of society approach to pandemic preparedness. Hmm, think about that. Every society is always preparing for a pandemic. And that means there will not be a moment ever when the WHO doesn't have operational control over so-called public health matters in this country. Now, what's that going to mean exactly? You've already guessed it's not really about public health. It never is. But before we tell you what exactly it's going to mean, you should know that none of this is going to be optional. Thanks to an amendment from the Biden administration, the treaty contains a provision for a compliance committee. Ooh, there's always the stick. It provides that every member country in the WHO... Okay, this is bogus. Uh, That's not good, Tucker. It's not good to spread nonsense like that. Now, I was just listening to that All in the Mind podcast, and they talked about how comics, where, where they're coming up with their routines, they have reduced blood flow to the prefrontal cortex. So Tucker Carlson is a, is a comic. He's an entertainer. We should not hold him to the same standards that we hold journalists and more sober pundits. If you're going to be as funny as Tucker Carlson is, it's going to come at the cost of sober judgment. So let's put Tucker in his appropriate genre. He's entertaining. be excited. So she gets elected and the country wakes up the next morning and realizes, wait, we just, we just elected a low IQ wine mom as vice president. So the administration tried to give her jobs. Hey, fix the border. Wait, get Russia to pull back and not invade Ukraine. That didn't work. So now she's become, and a lot of people do become this in middle age, just kind of a freelance philosopher. She's like a dyslexic poet with a limited vocabulary. She just kind of bombs around the country emitting words. And they're hilarious. She showed up at a children's hospital in Washington, D.C. today. Here's part of what she said. You know, when we talk about our children, I know for this group, we all believe that when we talk about the children of the community, they are a children of the community. When we talk about the children of the community, they are the children of the community. And you think that's good? Listen to her talk about electric buses. 
we had, many of us, the administrator and a, a number of us, the opportunity to be inside of a, an electric school bus. And it was fantastic. The press actually rode on an electric school bus, just so you know. So I think they got the real inside feeling for what this means, right? And so what we all experienced is on an electric school bus, on an electric bus, no exhaust, no diesel smell. See, when you're in an electric bus, like it's an electric bus, right? I mean, it's a bus, but it's electric. There's no exhaust because it's an electric bus. She's so great. We'll be back tomorrow. Okay, so it speaks well of Tucker that he seems to obviously be having such a good time. So good on you, Tucker, for being a happy warrior. Good on you for being so entertaining and frequently brave. And I've made my criticisms that need to repeat. Guru types, according to Professor Brown and Dr. Kavanaugh, is having an anti-establishment streak. And within that, a propensity for what they call science hipsterism. That's a tendency for people in the guru set to like to present themselves as having identified a scientific theory or idea before anyone else. And that's the important thing. So a good example would be they might agree that global warming is occurring, but they will say, but it's not for the normal standard reasons, you know, the convergence of multiple lines of evidence or whatever. It's more the YAML creators and what these indicate. And you might wonder what the YAML creators are. And that's the point. Humanity has never seen such strange natural phenomena before. Giant craters appearing in the YAML Peninsula. One after another. That, you know, it's an obscure fact that most people won't have looked into these, like, you know, large craters that are in the Siberian tundra. And this means that there's an appeal for contrarian takes and to present it in the way that, you know, normal hipster culture revels in having identified bands or some style or fashion ahead of everyone else. It's that exact tendency, but applied to the scientific sphere. Do you have an example of that? The, the one with the YAML creators is an example from Brett Weinstein. And, and Brett and Eric Weinstein, these two brothers who are kind of culture war figures in the so-called intellectual dark web, they're, they're somewhat prototypical in the sense of the gurus that we are looking at. To know that you have achieved something, you have discovered something, and that nobody else can even recognize it gives you some sort of sense of how far ahead you might be. Yeah, they, they're the, often the easiest to go to for examples because they're in some ways the most blatant. A third characteristic gurus often share is a so-called Cassandra complex. A lot of the stuff we've talked about, these features go towards establishing the guru as being a special source of knowledge. So their epistemic credibility, if you like. Whereas something like the Cassandra complex, uh, Cassandra, of course, is the um, legendary mythological figure who was cursed to warn others of the danger and, and not to be believed. So again... Okay, some great analysis from Decoding the Gurus. Now, I need to buy a, a gift for... for a for a wedding, for a bat mitzvah, for, for a friend who, who's dating, which are the best rape alarms, right? You sh if you're a woman, you shouldn't go out into the world without a good rape alarm. And this is apparently 9.9 .9 out of 10. It's got a safe sound personal alarm, 12 packs, 140 decibels, personal security alarm, keychain with LED lights, emergency safety alarm for women, men, children, and elderly. I really don't think you should be without this rape alarm in the age of of monkeypox, right? 140 decibels, right? Safe sound personal alarm. This emergency alarm can make a loud sound to draw attention to protect you from having an emergency, even at distances as far as 606 feet. And the sound can last 50 minutes in a continuous ear piercing alarm. So I'd love to hear from you, which, which are your favorite rape alarms? And are you prepared in the age of monkeypox? Are you just walking around blithely going down the street, just like studying your Torah or reading the New Testament, praying to the Almighty, singing hymns, doing good works, 
looking after your family, moving ahead in your career, pursuing your hobbies without any thought of the possibility that you could be raped, that you could be cornered. And, and what will you do if you don't have a rape alarm? Right? It, to be forearmed is to be forewarned. My, my dad would always tell me better to have it, not want it, than to want it and not have it. And these figures present themselves as being outside the mainstream, but they have an emotional hook, which is that they are often warning of terrible dangers. It could be warning of the um, encroaching Marxist woke danger to the United States, for instance. Marxism is taking over the United States. Will it succeed? Again, the mainstream is not recognizing the warnings that they are giving, which is why we call it the Cassandra complex. So I feel like this is important psychologically because it provides the emotional hook, the reason to, to listen to them, to, I suppose, guard oneself or prepare oneself um, against the coming dangers. I wonder about the Cassandra complex um, sort of characteristics, because I wonder if people are particularly susceptible to someone who has this going on, partly because, you know, we recognize that we need as a society visionary types to imagine a different future or way of being, you know, I think of even like, you know, someone like Steve Jobs or scientists, you know, even like Copernicus, we recognize we need these visionaries. So, you know, do people struggle to sort of see the difference between like a legitimate guru type and, and a less so, if that even is a distinction that can be made? Yeah, absolutely. I think what a helpful way to think about them is a little bit like uh, an actor who's playing uh, the president of the United States in a TV series or a movie. They often come across as more presidential than a real life president. President because they're devoting their energies to acting presidential rather than being the real thing. So in, in our view, these characters are very good at presenting as precisely what you said, a, a character like Steve Jobs, for instance, a visionary whose ideas are going to change the world. And yeah, I think it's very difficult for people to tell the difference, in fact. And I think, Sana, as well, the tendency to hook people into a grand narrative, right, that this specific little controversy that is causing problems, that it's actually linked to these global agendas. That's very appealing, as is the reference that many individuals make to figures like Galileo. Right. So obviously these professors, they're not as entertaining, they're not as compelling, they're not as funny as Tucker Carlson, but they have some much needed depth. Now, you don't want to just listen to professors all day. There's a place in a good balanced life for some Tucker Carlson, also some uh, decoding the gurus for some center-left perspective. Throughout history, right, where they will say, great ideas start with a minority of one. The unfortunate, or maybe the side which doesn't get considered as much is, you know, for every one Galileo, there's a thousand people claiming to be Galileo who were just wrong. And uh, that's, so, that's the fact so, that doesn't get factored in. Yeah, exactly. So this is, um, even has a name, it's called the uh, Galileo Gambit because of that. And so interestingly enough, a couple of our gurus, Brett uh, Weinstein and Heather Hanging, uh, specifically compared themselves to Galileo in terms of their ha having a views on the dangers of vaccines, on the dangers of fluoridation of the water, for instance, that everybody else can't see. So it's quite astonishing, really. Every great idea starts with a minority of one, and you have to be able to endure being right. alone with a great idea in order to advance the ball significantly. How is the average person meant to differentiate between this? You know, what, what should those of us who are just looking for answers out there be looking out for? Yeah, that's, that's tricky because I, I think in some sense what we've documented across the podcast that we produced is that these figures are, are very good and they're doing a lot of things which are emotionally and intellectually satisfying. It's kind of like junk food because you get the feeling that you're learning about these complex topics and diverse array of, you know, advanced mathematical or scientific theories. But in the end, you're really listening to somebody pontificate on YouTube about their own theoretical models, which are, you know, not accepted in the relevant disciplines or just linking in culture war topics to like an evolutionary framework. So it's hard to give advice about how to avoid that because I think it taps into psychology that, that is just common. So yeah, my immediate... Right. So a lot of the things that are most gratifying and appealing and compelling and not necessarily good for you. So I love this All in the Mind podcast. Here's, here's an excerpt from, from an episode on humor, why we laugh. 
and what counts as funny was we're not going to talk about that today that's not a discussion topic for today thank you but not today and so from that it was like okay well that's an interesting phrase what can you do with that and then the idea came to me that what if you had a morning show and instead of the today show it was the not today show good morning you're watching the not today show Where so once you then have a framework for the sketch it's then like okay so what are the other elements of as much as possible well, that's all that we don't have time for today please do join us tomorrow where we'll not discuss all the same issues again bye-bye Okay, so incongruity is one of the main theories for what makes something funny. Then there's superiority theory, and that gets potentially a bit darker, a bit meaner. So this was a view that was espoused by Plato and Aristotle and Socrates before them. And the idea is that we use humor in order to demonstrate our own superiority and also demonstrate the inferiority of others. And a lot of, a lot of comedy is actually about separating in-groups from out-groups. You know, there's one, one view that holds that any joke has a but. That is, there's always a victim in some way to, you know, mm. joke or a piece of comedy. And it's interesting how often that is true, even with jokes with inanimate objects. You know, you can say, well, the inanimate object in the joke is the victim of the joke. You know, it doesn't have to be a human being. So there is that view that, you know, every joke in some way has a victim. And often that's a way in which, again, we try and demonstrate superiority over others. Um, Emotional damage! For fairly unpleasant mm. and unwholesome uh, reasons. You know, it could be race, it could be culture, it could be sex. Or it could be for sort of slightly more high-minded reasons, such as, you know, political reasons. So we will dismiss or we will laugh at or we will ridicule, say, a political opponent or uh, a representative of a political party that we, we don't like. Emotional damage! Is the idea of punching up versus punching down, you know, the idea of poking fun at those with more power than you rather than those with less, a newer concept to address imbalances that potentially come from this kind of humour? No, not not really. I mean, it's always been there in some way throughout history. But then, I mean, the way in which we've used humour has sort of changed throughout history. I mean, so yeah, it's always been there. Uh, punching up and punching down and using humour to, to do that has always been there. And the success of that depends on who's doing the punching and who you're punching up on who you're punching down. So broadly speaking, I think political satire, you have a kind of licence. You're always generally going to be punching up because the perception is, is that the political class is you know at that higher level so and you know the, the comedian is at the lower level so it's always going to feel like you're punching up that said there are areas within that that then it actually then becomes it, it can become punching down so for example if you were an american satirist and you were mocking joe biden so there's there's room for you to do that but if you were mocking joe biden's stutter it suddenly becomes something different it's not really it's not really speaking truth to power it's more mocking someone's you know, there's something that they're born with and they've had to work really hard to overcome similar thing would be uh, family. So I think, you know, with Scott Morrison as an example, um, you know, you might want to make jokes about the prime minister, but you wouldn't go and then start doing it about his children. That's, that's, that's a separate issue. So, yeah. So I think broadly speaking, as long as you're quite clear about what your target is, you'll be all right. It's when it, that gets a bit muddled or if you get a bit sloppy with that, um, where you can sort of fall, fall into trouble. So to recap, we've covered incongruity theory, superiority theory. And then sort of right at the back of the pack, uh, deliberately so, you've, you've got you know, the various psychoanalytic theories such as that of Freud, which suggests mm. that you know, we use humour in order to release some sort of tension. So we will you know, make jokes about sex or aggression in order to relieve ourselves of these sexual and aggressive repressive impulses. Very little evidence for that, though, Senna, which is why uh. I say I've relegated it to the back of this particular set of thoroughbreds. Right, OK, fair enough. Separate to these theories of why we engage in humour, researchers have tried to pin down ways to actually measure it. And it depends on what you want to measure. So, you know, you can measure people's response to comedy, which is you know, one way of approaching it, but there are also unobservable things you can measure, such as sense of humour. This is where something called the humour styles questionnaire comes into play. Okay, so anyway, I've been riding the bus a, a bit, and I've noticed that there's one protected group that doesn't have to pay their fare. Now, I'll just let you guess which, which group this is, and it, it's not the elderly, but... I noticed that about half the members of this group, uh, sometimes, you know, 100% of like, say, eight members on a bus and not paying their fare. While generally speaking, it seems like 80% plus of other people are paying a fare. And so I've been struggling with how is this an example 
uh, of white racism. Like, why is white racism to blame here? And I had to do some work, but I was I was able to do it. I was able to come up with the reasons. So there's a peer-reviewed academic article. I assume it's peer-reviewed. Blacks can't jump the racialization of transit police responses to fare evasion. So when you have theft and stealing, and it's disheartening to like law-abiding citizens to see people just uh, skipping paying the fare, right? It it reduces social cohesion, social trust, uh, any sense of connection that these are your fellow citizens. But luckily, we've got academics here. This study demonstrates that racially disparate fare evasion citation outcomes are the product of racialized social systems that allow transit police officers to determine the belongingness of black riders in systems of mass transit. So it's not that some of these people are cheating, right? It's not that some of these people are breaking the law. It's not that they're destroying the social compact. But luckily, we got these professors tell us, we test the impact of race and place attributes on transit officer decisions to allocate punishment for subway fare evasion. So black riders suspected of fare evasion possess an elevated risk of being fined as opposed to being merely warned at stations located within predominantly white neighborhoods and as stations increase in ridership. That's our biggest problem on public transport is that too many people who are, who are evading fares are getting prosecuted, right? We're just being too persnickety with those rules such as paying, paying your fare. But we, we've got all these transit police officers at their own discretion challenging black belongingness on systems of public transportation. And the same with library fines, right? People don't return books and, and videos to the library and they get hundreds of dollars of fines and these fines are racist. Subway arrests investigated over claims people of color are targeted. This is the New York Times. So New York's attorney general said she would examine whether policing in the transit system was tainted by bias. Yeah, it must be bias. If you've got a group which is being ticketed at a disproportionate rate, is having to pay fines at a disproportionate rate, the only possible explanation is uh, racial discrimination. Like, why, why are police officers challenging black belongingness on, on public transport? It's, it's a shanda. And when I, when I look up this story, like all over the web, there are just dozens of articles. Black passengers cited punished disproportionately by sound transit enforcement. Right, this is up in Seattle. So, nine percent of the people who ride light rail and commuter trains are black, but twenty-two percent of the riders caught up in the fare enforcement system over the last four years were black. And for black riders, the disparity grows as the punishment gets more severe, from warnings to one hundred twenty-four dollar tickets to misdemeanor theft charges. In the last four years, half the riders who faced a misdemeanor charge for failing to pay a fare were black. Well, this is obviously the fault of white racism, right? How can we expect members of protective groups to play by the rules, to be honest and diligent uh, citizens, to uh, contribute to society? No, that is obviously 
the fault of white racism. His reaction is that I'm not sure I have a great recommendation. Matt, maybe you have something more optimistic. Yeah, I think I could do better than you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's if, if one just pays attention to the form or the external features of, of these characters, it's very hard to tell the difference between a genuine visionary, someone who is uh, dispensing good information from, from bad. So my advice for people would be to not to try, not to do that, but rather um, develop those, um, I guess, information literacy skills where you can... So this kind of behavior makes life hell for law-abiding citizens who try to use public transport. Like public transport is frequently a hellscape. Right? We're not suffering from an excess of law enforcement on public transport. Right? You have all these articles trying to encourage people to return to using public transport, but entire groups of people are essentially being regarded as sacred and they simply can't be held accountable to the same laws that govern everyone else. This is the opposite of Ruli Giuliani's broken windows policing, right? We are pulling back, right? We've been pulling back as a society the last three years in particular from broken windows policing. And now we're increasingly saying, hey, you break a window, no big deal, right? And society is going to hell. Less social cohesion, less social trust, people more afraid of each other. There's, there's more hatred, right? If, if your minority group developed a reputation for honesty, for being pro-social, for being generous, for being courteous, I don't think there would be nearly as much animus towards your group. We have a profound effect on how outsiders see us. If we behave righteously, outsiders are less likely to hate us. If we behave despicably, outsiders are more likely to hate us figure out how to access the representatives of the scientific or academic consensus. So if you're interested in an issue like climate change or vaccines or some other um, technical question, develop those meta skills in terms of how to access the consensus. Now, of course, as our gurus say, the mainstream consensus isn't always correct, but it is almost always our best guess at the truth for the time being. Matt, you, you kind of jogged something in my brain. I think I would also emphasize that when you consult the actual sources of relevant experts or the reports produced by mainstream institutions, but you don't filter them through what the gurus say. Like if you just consult, for example, in the case of the current pandemic, there's a podcast called This Week in Virology, which is a podcast with legitimate experts in virology and epidemiology. And they're discussing quite technical topics. But if you listen to an episode of that and you put it, you know, side to side with a podcast episode from one of the guru types that we might look at, the, the difference is very stark. And you can see how emotionally and intellectually satisfying the kind of guru presentation is, but how it lacks the actual expertise, knowledge, and depth of knowledge about the relevant research literature. So in some sense, I just encourage people to like listen to the critique, but then seek out the actual thing which is being critiqued and see, does it match up to the cartoon villain that's being presented? You're listening to All in the Mind. All, all in the Dawn. Mind. This is Australian Today, podcast. Today, Seeking University psychology professor cool. Matthew Brown and cognitive anthropologist Dr. Chris Cavanaugh decode the characteristics of gurus, not the spiritual leader kind of guru, but a more secular thought leader kind. They've spent hundreds of hours listening to podcasts, YouTube videos, and lectures, and their goal is to better understand how these figures operate and persuade their followers. Among the characteristics they've identified are so-called galaxy brainness, an anti-establishment bent, and having a Cassandra complex. Others include cultishness, grievance-mongering, and grifting. Okay, let's see what uh, young Kenneth Brown talking about these days. On the dating analogy, I think that the final cause precedes learning to know a girl. Before you even walk up to any girl, you need to have a reason to do so. After that, you can see if the character of the girl aligns. Okay, this video is called Metaphysics and Parasociality. With that goal, you have set. You can't judge the girl if there's no set criteria. How can you say this girl is good if you haven't defined what is good? 
The problem here is specificity. The original comment, if I can find it, was saying, you know, you talk a lot about politics. How can you call someone good if you don't define what is good? Do we really need a definition of what is a good girl, a good guy? I mean, is that is that something that's so bewildering? We have to get very specific without metaphysics so that we can have a conversation. But what about your particular purpose and goals? Give me specifics. And I replied that, you know, putting aside the fact that, you know, my life is mostly mundane. You know, when I make a schedule, it's like, okay, get up in the morning. Well, you never know it from your voice. I mean, he's got Kermit the Frog voice. His voice is just stuck in the back of his throat, like mine was for virtually all of my life till I lashed out for some voice lessons about three years ago. But I remember how I just always pretty much spoke with a dull monotone. Like, th this is how I sounded for like 97% of my life. I have to do things for my physical health. I have to work for eight hours. I have to do household chores. I have to meet up with people. You know, these things, these are goals that I have on a daily basis. These are purposes that I have on a daily basis. But there's no reason for me to talk about it other than to form a parasocial relationship where you feel... Wait, why is there no reason for you to to talk about your life unless it's to form a parasocial relationship? Like a parasocial relationship is not inherently a bad thing. We all have a parasocial relationship here. I think the only person I've met here in real life is Judas, right? I haven't met anyone else in real life, yet we have a good relationship. You enhance my life. I am happier because you're in my life. You make my life better. You provide needed challenges to my points of view. You provide factual corrections, logical corrections, moral corrections to things that I'm saying. I think more accurately. I think more profoundly. I think more sensitively because you're in my life. And what's wrong with, with basing much of your analysis on your real life experience as opposed to having read it in some metaphysical work? Right. Reality is a good thing. And parasociality can be a bad thing, right? Para means beside. It's This is a form of social interaction. And you're here because this is meeting your needs better than the alternatives. I am here because this is meeting my needs better than the alternatives. I feel like crap. I got my fourth COVID shot yesterday. I feel like crap. The only way I'm going to have to talk to a bunch of people and share some thoughts and some clips are of interest to me is to do a show like this. I'm not going out into the world today, right? I, I went outside for 20 minutes and sat in the sun and, and read a book, right? And that's, that's all the in real life socializing I feel like doing today. A and so parasociality or talking a little bit about your, your real life, as the, the basis for your for your thoughts. I, I don't see why this is such a horrible thing. I feel like I'm your friend and we're friends with each other and I'm talking about my life. And that's a great strategy. I, I am friends. I'm friends with Laponius. I've never met Laponius. We're friends. And let's say I did meet Laponius. It wouldn't necessarily add that much to our friendship. Like our friendship would take on a whole new dimension. Right? We wouldn't you know, take our friendship and just transport it into, you know, the highest atmosphere if we met up in person. There wouldn't be all these incredible new layers of depth and meaning and excitement if we met up in person. There are a lot of people with whom I've had primarily a virtual relationship 
and then I've met up in person and it was nice. It was a bonus. It didn't really add that much to the friendship, right? If I met up with Ricardo for two hours, do you think it would just add, you know, quantum leap to, to the quality of our, our relationship? Ricardo's a married man. He's got obligations, all right? He's got work. He's got all sorts of things going on in his life. If we happen to meet up, I think that would be great, but it wouldn't transport our friendship into a whole new dimension. There's nothing wrong, inherently wrong, with having parasocial relationships. For me to get Patreon subscribers and donations and whatnot is through that parasociality. But that is not challenging. That is not helpful. That is creating a fantasy of sociality. Um, where's, the, where's the fantasy? I have a friendship with Laponius. I've never spoken to him on the phone. All right? I've never met him in person. I've never Skyped or FaceTimed with Laponius. We're friends. We gather here together. We talk about things that we can't really talk about so much and in, in this way in, in real life. This is a virtual watering hole where we shoot the breeze and I challenge you and you challenge me and we're all the better off for it. So I don't exactly see why that's such a horrible thing. So I don't share young Kenneth Brown's disdain for parasociality. Sometimes it's a good thing. On the whole, the gurus Professor Brown and Dr. Kavanaugh look at tend to be men. Yeah, it does seem to be more often men, and that may have something to do with the the kind of ultra-confident, narcissistic personality that seems to be attracted to that role. Having said that, uh, I think Chris would agree that if you shift a little bit to the health and wellness sphere, we see a lot more women. In fact, the, the balance may be in the opposite direction. Yes, we've actually looked at Gwyneth Paltrow relatively recently and the group brand as a guru, and there were a lot of those dynamics, in, in particular profiteering, but in areas which we look at, which tend to be focused on a little bit culture war topics, it does have meal skew although that might- right joe rogan is the equivalent of gwyneth paltrow so the joe rogan show is good for men I, I didn't come up with that but once i stop streaming tonight i'm not going to sit down and read a book i feel like crap the adrenaline i get from doing this the risk that i could say or do something ridiculous that could haunt me for the rest of my life brings me out of my you know foggy fluey stupor and and when I finish with this show, I'm going to kick back and I'm going to watch Under the Banner of Heaven. I'm going to watch Gaslit, that uh, TV show about Watergate. And I'm going to watch Fresh Meat, that, that British TV show about five college kids. And then I'm going to go to bed. It's not like I am doing this at the cost of all these exciting in-person interactions that I could be having right now. I feel like crap. I don't want to meet in person right now. I feel like crap. I'm not going to delve into some difficult, challenging book right now. This is a social interaction. I get uh, some in-person interaction. Yeah, and guess what? Some days I don't get enough in-person interaction, and I feel it. It it hurts. It's painful. Those rare times when I feel lonely. It's painful. And... I think, oh my God, what's happening? That that ratchet in my psyche is at work, isolating me from other people. And I recognize it, I, I sit with it, and, and then I, I do something about it. I have many opportunities to get together with other people. When I feel better, I'll do that. I've 
you know, made all these steps to have more you know, face-to-face interaction. Uh, being excited about this show, being excited about the books that I, I read on this show, uh, being excited to cross swords with Laponius and Ricardo and, and Glib Medley and Elliot Blatt. All right. Excited to to bring new perspectives, new facts, new new logic, new news events, new clips. Th- that keeps me keeps me rolling. That's a, a powerful source of energy and inspiration in my life. And when I'm reading a book, when I'm listening to a podcast, when I'm watching a YouTube show, I do it with you in mind. I'm thinking about, oh, I wonder what Laponius will say about this. I wonder what Ricardo will say about this. I wonder what Elliot Blatt will say about this. In addition to people I know in real life who also watch my show. So for many years, the most important person in my life lived in New York. And we've only seen each other maybe five times total. But he's been a really good friend. But the fact that we've only seen each other five times hasn't you know, destroyed the quality of our friendship. When I was bedridden for six years, I would send out letters and uh, cassette tapes w- with my thoughts to people all over the world. And when they responded, that filled me up. Right? I still needed some face-to-face interaction, but there's also a place for, for just sharing what's on your heart and what's on your mind. Not everyone in real life really wants to know about my thoughts on... Uh, Tucker Carlson and the World Health Organization, who's doing a better job with regard to COVID, right? In real life interactions, people, generally speaking, are not going to let me speak for more than about 10, 20 seconds before they interrupt. I mean, that's the nature of face-to-face interactions. They're, they're wonderful, but I enjoy having having a space where I can talk for 90 seconds at a time before I run out of things I want to say and and play somebody else's work. And I, I enjoy being able to develop ideas. I enjoy being able to throw together a bunch of random clips that contradict each other, offer contradictory thoughts of my own, encourage contradictory thoughts from, from the chat, throw all links to various sources that frequently contradict each other, you know, offer it up to the world and, and get feedback, right? Get comments, get emails, get, get phone calls, meet up with people in, in real life, go to dinner with people, go for walks with people, go to the beach with people, right? It's, it's a pretty good life. So I, I don't focus on what I don't have in my life. Obviously, as an Orthodox Jew, I'd rather be married with kids, but I'm excited at this opportunity to talk about things that are important to me. I, I think that some kind of scorecard about comparing the WHO's response to COVID and Tucker Carlson's response to COVID is, is useful. I think sometimes Tucker Carlson's been right. I think sometimes the WHO has been right. Overall, I think WHO has done a better job with regard to COVID than Tucker Carlson, but Tucker still lands a lot of important punches. And I'm open to, to being wrong. That's, that's why I do this. It corrects my thinking, right? You point out something stupid that I'm saying, then I won't embarrass myself so much in the future once I grasp your point. We all think much more logically, rationally, and morally when we think socially, when we're bouncing ideas off other people because we have evolved in a way that we can usually fairly quickly spot the fraud in someone else, the, the game in someone else, the grift in someone else, the dishonesty in someone else. We don't tend to see those things in ourselves. I'd also relate to 
myself and Matt's lack of knowledge about the female guru sphere. Yeah, you mentioned earlier Russell Brand. Can you explain a bit more in terms of how he fits into this, um, in terms of what's he doing that makes him, uh, you know, a modern day guru? So I think initially he was more of just a fairly conventional celebrity, right? Acting and hosting various shows and, and sometimes giving opinions on whatever controversy of the day was. But there was a period where he slipped into commenting on politics and in particular advised people not to vote in an upcoming election in the UK. And that led to him getting a lot of attention from younger people. And he actually produced a book called Revolution, which was outlining his political philosophy, which I might put in air quotes. But that first wave of him has now transmuted to, he's kind of shifted to a combination of spiritual guru and political social commentator. He releases these kind of interviews and lectures on YouTube, discussing with other figures who are often also guru-like people, like Jordan Peterson or Sam Harris and so on. And he's really now outlining a kind of alternative spiritual political worldview. Imagine living harmoniously in eco-villages where the sacred was at the forefront of your experience, at the forefront of your mind. By the sacred, I mean that we are one, that we are together, the animals, each other, God, God's self, living in harmony. Yeah, I think Russell Brand is a good example of how gurus have to be charismatic and they, they all have their own different ways of doing so. Now, most of our gurus do project the um, serious, rational, uh, academic style, but there are other ways to do it. And Russell Brand uh, projects the kind of, I guess, prototypical scattered genius who has flashes of inspiration um, and profound insights. So, and he's, you know, if you look at his style, it's it's very important to what he does. He speaks extraordinarily quickly. Um, he's almost uh, hypnotic. So that those, those personal... So do you have the strength to say things that people won't like do you do you have the strength to to stand up for god and country even when it's unpopular do you have the strength to stand up for vaccines even though 95 percent of your audience are going to scorn you good article in the atlantic today vaccines are still mostly blocking severe disease so our original recipe shots are holding up against new variants of COVID. we may need to improve them however and soon so for the past year and a half since the COVID-19 vaccines first became available, even as last summer's reprieve gave way to a Delta surge, then Omicrons, even as the coronavirus continued to rack up mutations that lifted its speed and its stealth, even as millions of vaccinated Americans caught the pathogen and passed it on, it's been one huge slice of solace to cling to. The shots we have are still doing an excellent job of staving off severe disease and death. Now, I don't know much about science. Right? It just seems to me that this article is, is accurate. I'm not particularly well read on, on vaccines, but this has the ring of truth. Billions of people around the world have been dosed at least once, twice, thrice. The shots have saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives in the United States alone. They probably could have saved hundreds of thousands more if people had rolled up their sleeves. We are so much better off than we were in 2020 when nobody had any immunity, says Donna Faber, an immunologist at Columbia University. So it's like we're gazing down the side of a mountain that we've been trekking up for a good 30 months. So we've got a nice stubborn buffer of elevation now lying between us and the bottom. Right, the sea level status of no protection at all. Then you've got the body's defenses against severe disease, their immunological bedrock. Once cemented, they're difficult to erode. So even as this fast mutating virus pushes down from above, our footing has for more than a year now felt solid and the ground beneath us unlikely to give. Now, vaccine shots are not perfect. They can't completely block infections. They can't keep the debilitating symptoms of long COVID at bay. Still, against the severest outcomes, vaccination is holding up. It provides a lot of comfort just knowing that this layer of protection is there. So as COVID's shape-shifting shenanigans continue, 
widening the evolutionary chasm between its current iteration and the version that inspired 2020's vaccines, our position is starting to feel more precarious. So our immune defenses weaken. That can cause us to slip. The virus may up the ante, deliver a particularly powerful blow. We can have a rapid tumble down to the trailhead. We could have a total immunological reset, but this seems very, very unlikely. So the further away we stay from that juncture, the better off we'll be. If minimizing severe disease is a summit, it's one we have to keep striving for, likely by revaccinating with updated shots. So knowing when to dose up again with what will require keeping close watch on local conditions, trying to anticipate how the virus might shove us and maintain our gear in tip-top shape. It's a long way to the bottom, but backslides are possible. So stopping severe disease and death should be the first goal of any vaccine. It's not necessarily the first protective pinnacle the world set its sights on. Right Back when vaccines were new, people were hopeful that we'd quickly clamber up to some kind of symptom-free vista, maybe even dart up to no infection point. But as the vaccines got further out from their debut, it became clear that they weren't going to be perfect, right? We're not going to be camping at those outcrops of symptom-free vista or no infection point for very long, right? And this should be expected for any immunization to sustainably and reliably keep people safe from all infections. That is rare. So in the months after people got their shots, levels of infection blocking antibodies naturally drop off. Right? That's why I've gotten the COVID shot four times making it easier for pathogens to infiltrate the body and reproduce. Same time, the virus is only getting better at knocking us down. It strikes a new blow each time it tacks on another mutation that distances it from the version of itself that inspired our shot. So that wild card worries experts more than any immunological stumble. So virus evolution is always the biggest concern. And members of the Omicron clan have proved themselves particularly deft at infecting even the multiply vaccinated slipping around shot-raised antibodies with ease. So immunity is multifaceted, is too broad and too flexible for COVID to shove us all the way back down to the mountain's base. Although speedy defenders such as antibodies decline in the short term, other soldiers such as B cells and T cells can stick around for years, even decades, stowing intel on the virus so they can rise up again. Now, these veteran fighters aren't fast enough to stop a virus from breaching the body's barriers, but when it does, they can trounce it before the infection infection gets too severe. They're far harder to stump than fickle, fragile antibodies, right? They protect us even if antibodies are lost. Still, the virus's assault on our position on the flanks of protection peak are getting stronger. We'll have to dig in our heels far deeper to stay the course. So that's from The Atlantic. Characteristics and the characteristics of the speech and the body language is really important, I think. What it cares about is you being free, connected, content, a life of meaning and purpose. All the things you thought you wanted were mere facsimiles and imitations of the truth that the 12-step program will deliver unto you and you do deserve it. While Professor Brown and Dr. Kavnaught analyze the behavior of figures like Russell Brand and others in more detail in their podcast called Decoding the Gurus, they're planning to submit more formal research on the topic too. Yeah, we're definitely planning to bring this in um, more formal channels. It's a little bit challenging because although our respective research backgrounds has a lot of overlap with this, I don't believe it's been fully recognized in the literature as a distinct social psychological phenomenon. Most of the literature actually deals with more traditional forms of um, cults or belief in the paranormal um, or political radicalization and so on. And this has elements in common with all of those things, but in many ways is a new phenomena that's associated with the web 2.0 and this loss of trust in the mainstream media and various kinds of establishments so we we do intend to publish on it okay i was talking yesterday a little bit about can you change your personality 
And this is from this terrific Australian podcast, All in the Mind. How much can you shift your own you, personality? The pendulum swung to some of my colleagues back in the 80s and 90s where they said, you know, personality is fixed like plaster. Now they put the date for that later in the life course around age 30. So there's still a developmental period in childhood, adolescence, and young adulthood in their, in their ideas. But then they said, yeah, once you get to about 30, you're fixed. That picture started to change when scientists began recording long-term data on people. Think two or three decades of information about their lives and personalities. Since that time, we've been blessed uh, with a lot of longitudinal data. There's a quirk of history that between investments made by countries, especially in Europe or New Zealand um, or Australia, the Hilda study, for example, in Australia is a best example of of a public good that happens when countries say, yeah, we should probably do some assessments of our people. And many of those studies included personality. Bell says, never been said. I'm worried that Luke will run out of things to say. Photosphere rule number 27, everything circles back to Luke measures and personality trait measures. And because of that, we've, we've just gotten oodles of data. And so we, our, our perspective is, I think, grounded much more in good, strong empirical evidence at this stage. And the picture is less exciting because it's less extreme in the sense that, you know, it's fun to contemplate the possibility that personality doesn't exist. It's also... Uh, Luke, Luke doesn't go into crowds. He's elite. He, step, he sits on the mountains with David reading 10,000 books fun to say your, your personality is stuck by the time you're five because of your edible complex, neither one of which is true. And the, the empirical story is, is a middle story, a middle way of sorts, where I think the lay perception of personality being fixed is enough right um, that you know they, they don't get that contradicted as much as they might. But the idea that personality doesn't change and doesn't develop is clearly wrong in the sense that we see really incremental positive changes in personality traits in particular across the life course, starting usually in adolescence or late adolescence, happening mostly in that transition to young adulthood, but also continuing into middle age and sometimes even in old age. Typically, people become more emotionally stable, agreeable, and conscientious over time. Much of this personality change is tied up in environment, life events like whether you have a partner or a... I mean, that's certainly true of me. I think I've become more stable, uh, more agreeable, more responsible, more, more conscientious as I've aged. Family. When it comes to the research we've done, we've done a lot of studies where we've tracked people over time and tracked their experiences to try to figure out whether the experiences are correlated with the changes that we see, and they are. And so we have seen reproducible patterns such as you know, initiating significant relationships in young adulthood are associated with becoming less neurotic and becoming more conscientious, for example. And just that you know, attaching yourself to another person, having another person who cares about you and is there for you and, and that and having that last for time seems to be something associated with the kind of positive personality changes that we see. I am so glad that you are here. You're paying playing an incredibly important role in my life, helping me to develop my personality in a positive direction. A little bit more from the latest episode of Decoding it's difficult. the Gurus. And I think for a lot of people, that and it was for me as well, it's like quite revealing about the processes of how your mind is working, running okay, by this is about... just the natural process, but meditation. And if you took people and just give them the basic introduction to meditation and didn't tell them anything else, I think you would not see all of the things that someone like Sam Harris might claim are just the natural process. But The part that I would agree with him on, and I think most people who've meditated for any amount of time would agree on, is that if you start a meditational practice, you become aware of how unruly your mind is, how often it's projecting into the future, looking at the past, or how hard it is to exist in the moment, and how hard it can be not to make your mind go off running on tangents and that kind of thing. Just focusing on activity is very difficult. And I think for a lot of people, that idea was for me as well, it's like quite revealing about the processes of how your mind is working in daily life, that if you don't take the time to do that, that you might not notice. Now, the second part of that, so does that lead to the awareness that the self is an illusion and that there is nothing inherently there? I'm much more skeptical about because I think... I've got so many open tabs. Sorry about the technical difficulties. Yeah, there's very little evidence for mindfulness uh, being a a big help in your life. There's very little evidence that uh, meditation definitely improves your life. There's, you know, fairly slim evidence that uh, antidepressants are, you know, consistently helpful. But 
Yeah, mindfulness is largely a bogus fad. The notion that we have an autobiographical self concept, which is actually very important to how humans function in the world. And yes, it depends on how you frame something as an illusion, because sure, it's a cognitive construct that comes from psychological processes and there's no homunculus behind the wheel at the end of the day. And there, you know, there's lots of good studies showing that we can have conflicting impulses or things driving us that we don't notice. But I think that if you look at people who have Alzheimer's or who get brain damage and the impact that the destruction of a personal identity and a loss of memories can have on an individual, it's really clear that people then say this person has lost what they were, right? It, and it's very hard for the other people in their lives. Now, if that person as well, when it's happening to them during the process, they're often very distressed about what's happening, right? They don't want to lose it. But once they've lost the ability in the individual moments, they can be fine because they don't have an awareness. But like, I think most people, if you said, do you want to recognize your daughter or your grandchildren? They'd regard it as a fundamental loss. And I think this notion that people have about the destruction and illusion of self, it doesn't recognize the, the importance of that cognitive component that we have, the story of an autobiographical self. And I think becoming aware of how you construct that through meditation is interesting, but I think it's a fundamental component of being human that we do have a sense of an autobiographical self. So that's my extreme take on it. But like, I think it's an illusion in the same sense that the way we process vision is an illusion. Mm. I have a take on that too, which is I think you can get to that point, that understanding, at least intellectually, without doing any meditation at all. I think I find it maybe a little bit easier because I've got a terrible autobiographical memory and (laughs) I'm usually just drifting around in a haze and not really knowing what's going on. But most people are aware that you're a different person when you're at work and when you're at home in bed or playing with your children. And at different times in your life, you've been different people. And if you've ever taken certain kinds of drugs, you'll know that you can be a different person again. And I think if people are honest with themselves, they don't really think that there is like this ineffable self, like a kernel of a crystal somewhere that's sitting inside you, which expresses itself differently. I think it's layers of an onion skin. So you can figure that out. I mean, but they'll say, oh no, you have to feel it. You have to truly, which I would say, I don't know what that means. I'm sorry. And I promise I'll let you respond after this, but I just want to mention that there was a cross-cultural psychology conference that I was at. And I seen some debates also in the literature about the self-concept in East Asia versus the self-concept in the West, right? I'm familiar with this research looking about the way that particularly Japanese people use social media versus participants in North America and Europe, right? And there was this difference in the results when you look cross-culturally that Japanese people tended to regard it, that basically there is no fundamental self, that there is a situational self, which depends on the context of what you show. So, you know, what you do when your boss is watching is different than when you're with your friend. And they were talking about social media usage, having to navigate that, right? That you have to present all these different types of selves and this being completely in line with their self-concept and the self-concept in Japan, which is very much contextual. Even the language reflects that, right? That the hierarchy changes the verbs that you use when you're talking to someone. So you always are aware of positional relationships. But the American respondents tended to regard people modulating their opinions on social media networks in order to not cause trouble with like employment or so on, to be denying the true self because they were representing themselves differently towards different people and sometimes like putting their opinion down. That struck me as if you construct a view of psychology or introspective practices based on the default being the Western North American perspective. Are you, are you holding back on your true self by denying other people the joy of hearing your opinions on immigration and racial issues? That it will result in you having a very skewed, a very culturally specific interpretation of like what the self is. That, that It just struck me that that's relevant. Yeah, I'm sorry, we're not letting Mickey talk, but I just want to say I agree with you there, Chris. <laughs> I think that's kind of what I was saying, that a lot of what we're referring to when we talk about the self and so on is, is not talking about a fundamental psychological thing, but it's like a cultural construct that for Westerners is, is a hot button issue and just happens to fit nicely with some Eastern religions as well. What about you, Mickey? What about you, Mickey? Come on, you, can, you, you, you say something now. <laughs> well, my take, I'm skeptical that without some extra cultural, actual teaching that the self is an illusion, that you will get there naturally no matter how long you meditate. 
I could be wrong about that because I haven't done these extreme forms of meditation. But it reminds me of this, I guess, a common occurrence for, I've never done this, but people who take this, this drug uh, called ayahuasca. It's oh, a okay. cactus yeah. in Peru, I believe, in South America, more generally. And apparently, a common experience, a common visual hallucination you might experience is the vision of a jaguar. And everyone, you know, waits to see this vision of a jaguar. And then I'm like, is there something about the drug that leads to a vision of a jaguar? Really? Or is it that in <laughs> South America where there are jaguars and maybe the shaman talks about jaguars and they have some sort of mythical, you know, power or what, what have you that leads you and then you're taught about it and that's what you see. So it struck me there might be a similarity there going on. So I just kind of push against that notion that you automatically are going to have this revelation. If you, only if you meditate the right way, will, will you get there? But again, maybe I haven't done it the right way and I've got to get on wake just, just a quick shout out on that topic of ayahuasca. A very nice podcast, what's it called? Oh no, Ross and Carrie. They, they do great stuff, but they went down. <laughs> One of them, Ross, went down to do an ayahuasca experience and he had a very, very bad trip. It's probably worth so many of my friends' acquaintances peer group are really into the ayahuasca. Listen to it because he probably experienced, it's probably evidence for the existence of a self-concept because... A lot of people credit it with uh, making major changes in their life. I, I don't have... Oh, for myself, I am like very, very scared to, to try anything like ayahuasca, but I'm open to the possibility that this really is helping people. He completely lost it and felt that he didn't exist and was maybe dead. And it was a terrifying, terrifying thing. But a great episode to catch, if anyone. Look, Ricky and Matt, you're experienced psychonauts. So dissociative experiences can be transcendent, but they can also be freaking scary, right? Like, yeah. And this is the problem with large group awareness therapies like, like Tony Robbins or certain yoga experiences, all right? People can lose their mind in large group awareness therapy where you've got... Know, a whole room you know, gathered together, you know, reaching for the transcendent under the guidance of a guru. And it's not uncommon that people just lose their minds. I want to get back to normal. <laughs> so the, sure. yeah, bad trips exist. By them, do. Mickey, we've taken up a lot of your evening, but I... Okay. Mickey Kaus says we should replace the great replacement theory. Right. Uh, uh, we were just in the abstract talking about whether it was irresponsible as Tucker Carlson to invoke replacement theory. And you said... It was irresponsible, and I may be misquoting you, irresponsible of him to uh, pick on the exact words that Nazis use uh, and fringe uh, crazy right-wing groups use. Uh, and I said, well, but you, you, know, you can't let these people uh, you know, uh, veto the terms of the debate. The, 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 the and, crazy people will have won if we avoid making the right, crazy right. people and crazy. Can, and we couldn't talk about welfare reform if you worried about crazy people because crazy people are animated by welfare reform. And I, I can see now that, well, I can see now that you were right because a couple of reasons, but the main reason is the main two reasons are the crazy people have guns and will use them uh, in ways that uh, they hadn't used them since 2019, but they have used them with some regularity. So you, you, the costs of. Okay. These so supposedly right wing shooters inspired by the great replacement theory that they account for an infinitesimal death toll compared to other sources of murder. So Hot-button issues will arouse hot-button responses. So should we not talk about abortion? Should the conservative case against abortion that abortion is murder, should we not be allowed to say that out loud because some abortion doctors get threatened or killed? Uh, of using their words is great, even though there's not much evidence that this guy in Buffalo was a listener of Tucker Carlson or was in any way influenced by, by Tucker Carlson or would have done anything differently if Tucker Carlson had never lived. You never know in the background, you know, his affirmations may have, you know, prompted some people on the Reddit, Reddit and 4chan. He was a 4chan fascist, basically. And he listened to 4chan and maybe they were, they had their, they were motivated in part because they knew that they had some approval from somebody at Fox. Uh, and the second thing is something I actually wrote about after the 
El Paso shooting, which was in 2019, mm-hmm. and which Jonathan Chait uh, reiterated this week in a column I otherwise disagreed with, but this is, I think, a correct point, which is the slippery slope to violence when it comes to immigration, and this guy was animated by immigration, this shooter, uh, is the slippery slope to violence is greater than on other issues. So even, you know, nobody, very few people are going to go shoot up uh, a mall over tax reform or the minimum wage or taxing the rich or, or excessive taxation, though know, some, some will. That just shows that it's an important and passionate issue, right? So we shouldn't talk publicly about issues of, of burning importance to people. Uh, or even welfare. Welfare just does not prompt shootings the way immigration does. And there's a reason for that. It's because immigration takes a concrete form in if you if you're for immigration restriction or even create this crazy guy believe that uh, somehow that not only was there replacement that the blacks who'd been here for centuries were somehow the replacers right. uh, he was a full-on racist fascist uh, uh, the people are there and you can the, the object of your uh, uh, if you're a, a crazy venomous person the object of your venom is there and what's more uh, you have some hope of succeeding in other words if, if, if this is why you know in Germany, Nazis routinely beat up immigrants on street corners. It's because they have some, actually some hope of chasing these people out of the country in a way which you don't on minimum wage or tax reform. So, so the slippery slope is there and the violence is there. So t- you're irresponsible to adopt their terminology in a way that affirms them, uh, even if it affirms also some other people who aren't Nazis. You have, there's sort of an obligation to find a better words, better rhetoric. Right, right. Okay, so reasonable and responsible Mickey Kaus there. So sitting in the sun for 20 minutes today reading The Adult Children of Alcoholic Syndrome, a step-by-step guide to discovery and recovery. Now, my parents were the farthest thing from alcoholics, but this book really resonates with me. And so let's just do some intense therapy right now, right? So you're probably in the chronic shock state, right? If you're here watching this show, very likely in the chronic shock state. This is a cycle of unexplained feelings. So Laponius, you seem to be having a lot of unexplained feelings. Also emotional shutdowns. I'm concerned about your emotional shutdowns and unexplainable behaviors that are linked to the shock event. Right? Are you are you unable to experience your feelings? Are you going numb? Do you have an unreasonable fear about being alone? Are you suffering from sexual dysfunction, bro? Are you suffering from the inability to become intimate with men? Well, I got to recommend the Adult Children of Alcoholic Syndrome. It's a step-by-step guide. So let's 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 move into the treatment flowchart. All right. So right now you're in the chronic shock state, but we're going to move beyond that, bro. We need to resolve. We need to bring you into a therapeutic environment. I think what we're doing here is a therapeutic environment. Allow you to process your cycles of re-experience, have your emotional discharge, get a sense of relief, and then, then you get to resolution and integration, bro. So chronic shock state. This is where you are right now. Cycles of unexplained feelings, emotional shutdowns, and unexplained behaviors linked to what Uncle Wally did to you when you're just a lad. Right now we move into need to resolve. All right, this is a safe space for you where you can resolve those feelings about Uncle Wally. So this is awareness on the part of the client. That's you. That something is amiss in your life and you have a desire to change. That's what brought you here to this show because you have a desire to grow. Step three, a therapeutic environment. This space is the epitome of the therapeutic environment. 
This is a safe space to experience the feelings repressed at the time of the trauma, at the time of Uncle Wally. We are creating here a healthy family atmosphere. So we got Uncle Elliot, we got Bad Boy Ricardo, we got Wise Man Laponius. All right, step four cycles of re experience. So it's perfectly normal, natural that you're cycling in and out of the shock experience with Uncle Wally, feeling emotions and then intermittently shutting them down. This is a place for you, bro, to let loose with your emotions and re-experience all those shocking events from the past. Step five, emotional discharge. All right, let it loose, bro. Let it loose. You've got to be you, bro. No more living a lie, Laponius. Feeling emotions that we repress at the time of the trauma. Time for you to release the pain, man. Are you ready to release the pain? You look to me like a man who's ready to release the pain and step into a world of healing radical love and inclusion well once you do the emotional discharge bro you'll get a sense of release right you'll get increasing awareness of how the trauma has affected all aspects of your life and then step seven resolution and integration so trauma becomes integrated as part of your life experience so there's a lot more where that came from like whole paragraphs on the need to resolve the therapeutic environment Cycles of re-experience, emotional discharge, sense of release, resolution, and integration. So here are the guidelines that I operate under. Be aware that the condition exists. Inform the client of what you know about chronic shock and how you will be working with it. Assist the client in filling in the memory gaps and remembering the details of the event. Challenge the denial. I try to do it very gently, considerately, but I have to challenge your denial if you're ever going to get better, Laponius. Then support and encourage the client through the feelings of hopelessness and helplessness. That's what I'm here for. Now, I'm not going to push you into moving too fast. Dealing with these issues takes time. Now, if you are a recovering alcoholic, you must have a firm basis in sobriety before working on these issues. You are a recovering fapaholic. You need to go no fap before you can really work with this stuff. You need to learn to work in a group. And chronic shock can happen at any age. So working through these chronic shock issues is both painful and frightening. There is no way around this. So this process of recovery will hurt. But at the end of the tunnel of pain and fear, there's freedom, joy, and radical love and inclusion, bro. It's like all the good parts of a gay bathhouse without the bad sinful parts, right? So I want your adult child to take this act of faith and trust in us as counselors and in a broader sense, have some faith in the process of the universe. This is fundamentally a spiritual issue. And then we move on to part two, recovery, the family integration system. You're going to love it. Believe me, you're going to love it. I'd be remiss if we didn't ask you, since we've trapped you here for the time being. So, you know, we cover gurus and focus on the secular variety. And you and your co-host, Joel, I think are people that have been active in the Heterodox Academy. Jonathan Haidt kind of space, right, with concerns about political influence on, particularly the psychology discipline. That, and I think many of the concerns are valid because there's a huge view in that direction. But I, I'm wondering, with COVID, 
and with the trajectory that the heterodox sphere has taken. I think it's taken a lot of blows. In Definitely. I wonder how you currently feel about that whole space and the discourse in general. Yeah, how do you guys feel about that that space and the, the discourse in general? Well, great news here from Laponius. I want to change and grow, bro. That's wonderful. That's me, bro. You're the only one who understands me. <laughs> this hurts less than Uncle Wally's unwanted attention, but it still hurts. Yes, I know it still hurts, bro, but I am here for you. Bye-bye. <laughs>